Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. Oh my God, everyone. I can't believe... This is my 300th episode. Thank you so much for listening to all of the podcasts of mine that you've listened to. This has been so much hard work. And when I listen myself to from the first episode to now, I realize how much I've learned and how much I've grown just as a podcaster and an interviewer and how much I've learned from so many incredible guests that I'm grateful for. It's just been an amazing experience. But I also have a special announcement. See, I did this contest to celebrate my 300th episode, and I got so many incredible entries from listeners all over the world. I can't thank you all enough for sharing your insights with me and sharing which episode helped impact your life. It was really hard to pick a winner. But Congratulations to Amber Ligon. You are the winner of the 300th podcast contest, and I'm going to fly you out to New York City for a live podcast taping. Keep an eye out for a message also on Facebook that I'll do. Also, I like so many videos, but I have two runners-up. I have a real special prize for the runner-ups because I love their videos and their creativity also. Congratulations to Aiton Nymius. That was a super funny video you did. And Scott Haybert. Uh, also a great video. So, and without further ado, I give you the 300th episode of the James Altucher show. Thanks once again for listening. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher show on the choose yourself network.
This first clip is from one of my favorite people, Tony Robbins. We had him on episode 217. The title was How to Be Fulfilled, Tony Robbins, and that was published in March 2017. We released that podcast. He's the nation's top life and business strategist. He's empowered more than 50 million people from 100 countries. He's the author of six internationally best-selling books, including, and most recently, Unshakable, Your Financial Freedom Playbook. Go check out the Netflix documentary, I'm Not Your Guru, which was actually produced by two other guests on this podcast, Brian Koppelman and David Levine. And this was the second time Tony was on, so we had already developed a relationship. The first time he was on, I actually had flown down to his house in Florida and interviewed him from there. I want to start from the, the beginning of the psychology. Like, you come in here, A, every one of my listeners know I interrupt all the time. You're impossible to interrupt. <laughs> Where do you get the energy? Where, what happens? Like, how do you, and then, and then I watched, you know, I Am Not Your Guru, the Netflix documentary. Yes. Everyone should watch that, produced uh, by my good friends, Brian Coppelman and, and David Levine, uh, who've also been on this podcast. Where do you get the energy to jump up and down for like three days and to inspire 15,000 people? Well, it, part of it is, you know, you, you come to play, right? I got a mission just like you. And you I come think, to play. Yeah, I come to play, man. I prepare and I come to play, meaning, I know what I'm made for, and this is what I'm made for. I'm made to help people create breakthroughs, financial, emotional, business. I mean, these are the things they do, relationship breakthroughs. But do you I'm ever obsessed. wake up? Do you ever wake up and say, oh, I got to go now to James Altucher's podcast? Who, whose podcast am I going? <laughs> I got to go there. Oh. No, I don't do that. I actually I've enjoyed my time with you, so I actually look forward to it sincerely. But there are times when I'm exhausted for sure. What city am I in? What the hell am I doing? But when I go to deliver... And when I go to deliver, as you know, it's like a 50-hour delivery in four days. It's, you know, 10, 12, 14 hours a day. And I have to own that audience. You know, I got to get the guy, a 15,000 person up on the top of the stadium and hold him for four days when most people won't sit for a three-hour movie. Someone spent $300 million right. to make. Right. Well, how, how can a listener, like, no one's going to be Tony Robbins overnight, but how can a listener kind of who's sitting in their cubicle or driving to work just say, okay, I'm going to listen to this and I, I'll, I'll read his book about finances, but I want a little bit of that energy right now. I want to go yeah. into work and be a little more positive, have a little more energy and make changes in my You've life. You've got to find something that you value more than yourself. You have to find, motive does matter. Motive brings energy. Now listen to me, life supports all of life. So if your motive is only to take care of yourself, quote, selfish, there's nothing wrong with that. You're part of life, life will give you insights. So the energy comes because there is an impact. I really believe all of us, you know, there's only so much pleasure you can get from, you know, making money, doing business, making love as great as that is, dancing, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is that floats your boat. There's only so much you can feel within yourself. That's why as soon as something beautiful happens in your life or you have a great experience, the first thing most want to do is share with somebody we love. Why? Because when you share it, it grows. And what do I do right now? I'm listening to this. What should I do? To, 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 to share. Or and what I would say is if you haven't found your passion, you need to get around where it's better. You should make your entire mission every day. How do I get around people that are more passionate, people that have a mission, people that are excited out of their mind and let something hit you because it's different for every person, but you got to get in the environment. People can do the most amazing things with their minds. But for me, part of it is business. And again, you've, you've spent decades doing it. Some people don't know how to do it. What A lot of people there, say, well, you, I have you know, a 10-hour job. Let, let's you and I get rid of this whole how thing just for a second. Okay. No how more how. Is, no, no, no. <laughs> just let me just try this with you. How is not as important as why or what. Mm. 
right? You know, the way you create, if you have to ask yourself, how am I going to do it? Most people won't do it for the very reason you say, I don't know how. I don't know how to do any of this shit. What I did is I decided what, that's what a leader does. What am I going to do? What's the result I'm going to produce? And more importantly, why? Because reasons come first and answers come second. If you get a big enough why, you can figure out how to do anything. The problem with your viewers that say, I don't know how, is they keep focusing on how. You can figure out the how if you got a strong enough what and why. What and why unleashes the psyche. But I feel like- How brings in the mind, and then the mind brings in fear. And you got to remember that brain, that two million year old brain, is always looking to protect you from being hurt. It's trying to make sure you don't fail. It's it's survival software, and it, that one will get you in your head. Get in your head, you're dead. Listen, I'm a strategist. I love the how, but the how must come after the what and why are so powerful that how, there's a million ways how to do something. And one one of the ways you learned in the past won't work today anyway. We want to stay on our toes. I learned so much from Tony and you've heard it in this clip. He said, you've got to find something that you value more than yourself. This is so important because I think people don't properly value themselves. People often outsource their self-esteem to other metrics. So I think this is a very important exercise and I did this myself recently. What are the 10 things I value more than money? So then when you have a decision to make, you always move yourself in the direction of the things you value more than what you thought was the most important thing to you. Like money causes a lot of anxiety for people. So often that's It might not be the most important thing in your life, but it might be the thing that's in your thoughts a lot. So when you write down 10 things I value more than money, now if there's a decision that comes across my plate, I'll make the decision that moves me more in the direction of my values. Because I know that money and other things that I thought were important, those are just byproducts, side effects of the things I truly value. For instance, being around a good community of friends improving at the things I love or the concept of freedom is something I value more than I value money. Now you could say money buys freedom, but that's not always true. And I've experienced both sides of that. So what Tony says here is really valuable. I really encourage people to re-listen to that episode, episode 217. Heck, I've listened to it three or four times. So I hope you get a chance to listen to it more as well. The next one, Sarah Blakely, I'm so excited because first off, I think she's one of the only self-made female billionaires on Forbes 100 list or Forbes 400 list, whatever that list is. And, uh, you know, she, of course, created Spanx. And it sounds like, oh, this is maybe an easy story, but man, her story is intense. And I encourage anybody to listen to it. I actually... Here's here's my own personal story with this. I begged my two daughters. I said, if you come to any of my podcasts at all, come to this one because you will learn. Now, teenage daughters don't listen to their fathers. They did not come to the podcast. One of these days they will listen to it, but I know this is one worth listening to. So let's listen to the clip and then I'll tell you some of my thoughts on it. Like you're inventing a rocket ship to Mars, which may or may not be even useful to society. You actually have created things that are immensely, immensely useful to society. So, 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 which brings me finally to <laughs> Spanx. Spanx. 
you 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 went to a, a ball or a party or whatever, and you realized you didn't want to have the feet on the yeah. pantyhose, so you cut them off. Well, I didn't want panty lines. So really, Spanx started way before I cut the feet out of my pantyhose. You know, that's the soundbite everybody talks about. But I had been doing, through Wayne Dyer, so much work on myself to prepare myself for that moment. And while I was selling fax machines door to door, I sat down one day. I was out of such frustration, like, this is not my life. Like, I literally had a moment. I pulled off the side of the road after cold calling 15 businesses that kicked me out. Did you cry? I cried all the time. And I'd like, listen to tapes to recenter my energy and get me self-motivated again. And some days I'd go cold calling and I wouldn't even tell my boss, but I wouldn't go through a single door that day. Like I'd go sit in a park all day and then go back to the, because we always had to report back at five. But some days I just couldn't even get the courage to walk through a door, mm. you know? And then the next day I'd be like, okay, I, I can do this. But, um, I, you know, the, the idea for Spanx and came to me because I was so specific. I woke up, I mean, I pulled off the side of the road and I was like, I'm in the wrong movie. Like, this is not supposed to be my life. Cut, call the director, the producer. Like, this is not, how is this, this is not me. And I went home that night and I wrote down what I was good at. And in the column of what I was good at was sales. And I started asking myself, why? Why am I good at sales? What is it about sales? And I I deduced that I liked being able to offer something to somebody else that they needed or didn't know that they needed, but then helped them or changed their life or made their life better. And so I wrote down on a piece of paper that night, I want to invent a product that I can sell to millions of people that will make them feel good. I like how you use the word invent, and it seems like that's a, that's an important word for you, um, as because like you can say uh, with Spanx, you, what you cre- created was a new. You were almost like a fashion designer for underwear, but you elevated to the point where you could say, "No, I invented something." Why do you think the word invent is important as opposed to other words that you could have used to describe yourself at that time? Well, for me, it was really important to also help me get people to pay attention to me. I had no money to advertise. I started Spanx with $5,000 in my savings out of my apartment. And so invent sounded also more newsworthy than here's a designer. And I also got a patent on it. I wrote my own patent. I went to but even as you've said, patents can't are not really enforceable. Like if someone sued you or if you needed if someone stole your idea, you weren't going to sue them. You didn't have money to sue them. So right. so you still but 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 the word invent, the word patent pending, these are words that kind of at least allowed you to get through the door. You know, what I also admire is there was a certain patience like you you first came up with the idea and then there was 2 years before you, the idea came to me. Yeah. Well, I put it out in the universe. So I wrote down on a piece of paper, I want to come up with an idea or invent something that I can sell to millions of people. And then it didn't come for two years. But I didn't squander any idea. So the I a lot of people think I cut the feet on my pantyhose for like months. I did it one time. And I literally was like, oh, are you my idea? Maybe you're my idea. I was so sure. I that, like the idea of asking, are you my idea? Oh, yeah, for sure. I was like, you know, it's like that book, that children's book, Are You My Mother? You know, each page, I don't know, I have all these small children, so I'm reading all these books, but every page, this little little bird's like, are you my mother? And he's saying it to like a bear and then a crane at a construction site. And I was like, are you my idea? Oh, but I was going to find out no matter what. I had no idea when I started pursuing footless pantyhose as an undergarment option, if that was the idea. But like, if I had been you at that point, <laughs> I would think to myself, "Ugh, there's four billion women in this planet wearing undergarments. Why am I going to come up with something? I can't tell you how many times I thought that. Like every other day. 
I'd have this whole mental dialogue and I'd be like, you know, what, what, who am I? I sell fax machines. I'm from Clearwater, Florida. I've never taken a business class. Why would I be the one to think of this and do something about it? And then, you know, then I'd have another conversation with myself or a week would go by and I'd be like, that's right, I'm not going to do this. And then there'd be this other feeling that would come over me and I'd say, but what if you are? Like, why not? Like, pursue it. And my life was so bad at the time that I often say, like, if you're in a place in your life right now that's super bad, be really grateful because, you know, I find it when things are the hardest, it's when you feel the most inspired to make change or when things are really bad. So I was selling fax machines door to door. I was dating the wrong guy. I was like not in a good place in my life at all, feeling completely like I was in the wrong movie. And that, it you know, if things, if it hadn't been that bad, I don't know if I would have felt so compelled to take some sort of radical action for myself. And, and, it, and it wasn't quite radical in the sense that you still gave yourself time. Like a lot of people kind of come up with an idea and they say, okay, I have the idea. Now give me money and I'll quit my job and I'll just do it. And you kind of incrementally just, I, I, I could imagine now from what you're saying, you would probably be frustrated with one area of your life and say, okay, well, I'm going to just make some incremental progress on this new idea mm -hmm. I have that's unnamed. Like what would be some of the kind of small, tiny things you would do to advance yourself forward? And this was over a two-year period. Yeah, I never quit my job selling fax machines. I worked, Which is really important to know. Yeah, I worked on Spanx um, at night and on the weekends for two solid years. And um, I took time off of work. I took a week off of work of vacation time to actually go in person to the manufacturers that had all been telling me no over the phone and cold called them to try to get them to help me make this idea. But it is really important to to know that I didn't just say, oh my God, I have this idea and I quit. I tried to really be calculating on how I could use the money and I needed my health benefits with my job for as long as I possibly could before I took the leap. And so, so again, I think part of your kind of mutant superpower is that you're able, you, you kind of, on the one hand, uh, attach yourself to this higher vision and of empowering women. And then on the other hand, you're able to infect others with the excitement you had for this product. So when did you start to really see how other people would be infected with the enthusiasm for this product? Well, I find that so important. I mean, I didn't have the most experience in the room. I didn't, certainly didn't have the most money in the room, and but I, I cared the most. So those things that, sh that are commonly listed as excuses why people don't try things, you right off the bat realize you didn't have them. No, I mean, I mean, I'd never taken a business class. I'd never worked in fashion or retail. I grew up on a beach in Clearwater where everyone wore t-shirts and cut off shorts year round. I, you know, I mean, yes, I, I, and, and I'm going against a multi-billion dollar industry that are filled with experts that all day long think of what should be next. And, so, but I think the reason why Spanx is still around now is because the one thing that I had that they didn't is I cared the most. And that passion is so important. So if you've got an idea or you're trying to mobilize other people to help you, you have got to be extremely passionate and have energy when you're talking to them and smile and just be infectious in how enthusiastic you are. And so, for example, when I cold called all these manufacturing plants in North Carolina, they all sent me away. They're like, no, thank you. No, thank you. Not interested. And it was a couple weeks later that one 
mill owner in Charlotte, North Carolina, called me, and he said, quote, Sarah, I've decided to help make your crazy idea. And when I asked him why he had the change of heart, he said, I have three daughters. And the three daughters had told him, Dad, this is actually a good idea. You should do it. But what caused him to even share it with his daughters at the dinner table was my passion. He said, I just couldn't. He's like, I don't think this is a good idea. He's like, I got to be honest, and I'm not sure, you know, what, if anything, this is going to do. But... He said, your enthusiasm and your passion for it is what stuck with me after you left. And it seems like you had to have the passion on several layers. Like there's the layer of this is what the product is. There's a layer of it's the higher layer of this is going to empower women. Then there's all these things that will make women feel it'll solve all these different problems for women along the way. And you kind of have to be passionate along each layer to, to really infect someone else. That's be multiple reasons. Yeah. I mean, I used to practice how I would say things and I would try to take any doubt language out of my delivery. So if I would hear myself say, I think it's going to be great, I would change it to, I know. And, you know, I just believe wholeheartedly that if you show any doubt in yourself, then the other person's certainly going to have it. So your best chance or your best foot forward is to show zero doubt. Even if inside you're like, I'm, I'm scared and I'm not sure. It's like, I know this is, I mean, when I, I cold called Neiman Marcus. So I called them on the phone and I said, I'm Sarah. I invented a product. You know, give me 10 minutes of your time and I'll fly to Dallas. And, you know, she, she just kind of said, well, if you're willing to fly here, I'll give you 10 minutes. But in those 30 seconds that I had with her, the first thing I said was, I'm Sarah. I invented a product that is going to change the way all of your customers wear clothes and they won't be able to live without this. You know, and she's like, what? What is this? And then, she, of course, she says, well, mail it to me. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to mail it to because you. Because she probably gets those calls every day. Yeah. I was like, no, I'm not going to mail it to you. I mean, I knew from cold calling that my best shot was in person. And she's like, well, you know, I really need you to just mail it to me and I'll circle back up with you. And I said, no, it's an invention. I'm very protective of it. And I need to be there in person to show you. It's only going to take 10 minutes. Please give me those 10 minutes. You I won't like how be you disappointed. Say, I like how you say it's an invention as if that implies somehow she has to see it in person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't mean that at all, but you kind of say, well, it's an invention. You have to see this in and then, And then what happened is I show up and she's like, First of all, impeccably dressed. This woman is like Neiman Marcus headquarters in Dallas. Please, her pen matched her belt. It matched her shoes. I'm sort of disheveled. I come in. You know, I've got my lucky red backpack from college with me as my presentation bag, and my friends begged me not to bring it. They're like, Sarah, do not go to the Neiman Marcus headquarters with that red backpack. They're like, buy a Prada bag. Return it the next day if you need to, but don't show up with that bag. And I'm like, but it's good luck. And I literally had this red backpack with a Ziploc bag of the prototype in it from the mill and a color copy of the packaging that my friend and I had created on her computer. She had just finished graphic design school. And so that was my presentation. And 15, five minutes into it, I'm totally losing her. I mean, and that's when I just stopped and leaned in and said, you know what? You need to come to the bathroom with me. And she was like, what? Excuse me? I'm like, please, I know it's a weird request, but will you come to the bathroom with me? I'm going to show you what my product can do in and out of clothes. And she followed me down the hall and I went in the stall with and without Spanx on with these cream pants. And she took one look at it and goes, it's brilliant. I get it. And I'm going to try it in seven stores and see how it goes. So, so A, you literally had skin in the game, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> and that's the way to do things. You have to get skin in the game. You can't be like every other presentation. Yeah. You have to put yourself into it. 
Such a great clip. Boy, Sarah was great. And not only that, she was funny. We had a we did a uh a clip afterwards uh pretending to argue and it was fun. We made a animation out of it. I don't know if you've seen that. But what really impressed me most about Sarah is the sheer persistence. I mean, this is someone now who has made billions and she's helped so many women, so many people wear these spanks that Sarah invented. Nobody needs to give you permission to invent something. She didn't have any, she was selling door-to-door copy machines. Like no one needed to give her permission to invent a whole new line of clothing that now everyone wears. She just went ahead and did it. And not only that, she was patient. She took years to get the product right. Then she took years to get it in the door at major big box retailers. Here's the important lesson. Anything that is worth doing is hard. Nobody gets up and suddenly becomes a billionaire. You know, Sarah worked hard and had the patience and resilience to get failure after failure, to get rejection after rejection before coming through. This has been a common theme among many of the people on the podcast who've achieved peak performance. So again, that was Sarah Blakely. She was in episode 211, one of my favorite human beings in the world. The next clip we're going to look at is astronaut Mike Massimino. This guy overcame huge hurdles to become an astronaut and then ended up really, you know, doing amazing things once he got to space. He fixed the Hubble Space Telescope so we can now see for gazillions of miles around us and, and, you know, contribute to our scientific understanding of what the universe looks like because of this one guy who overcame enormous obstacles to become an astronaut. So let's listen to his clip. We've got Mike Massimino on the podcast. Did I say it right? Nah, you screwed that up, man. <laughs> How do you uh, say it? Massimino. Massimino. I think, James, it's really hard sometimes to be honest with yourself about what you love. And um, you know, we. I think a lot of times we, we, we I, I anyway, sometimes will have a tendency to say, no, nah, that really is not that important to me. If I think it's hard to do, I'll say, well, you know, I don't, that's not that important or that's not, I really don't want to do that or whatever. And sometimes you're actually telling yourself it's not worth it to me to put that time in to get it. But other times I think we, you know, that if it's something that is really important to us, um, you need to be honest with yourself that that is what you really like and that's what you really love. And maybe that's not what you're good at or maybe you're not suited to do it or you don't think you are, but who knows, maybe you are. So I, I think what it came to me was is that I kind of realized that, well, me becoming an astronaut was impossible. And even as I got older and I was pursuing it, I knew that it was going to be very challenging. If I ever got the position to do that, it was going to be challenging for me because I am afraid of heights. And I didn't like the water. And I wasn't a thrill seeker. And this was kind of the ultimate thrill-seeking profession that I would have to, to do. But I also knew that it's something I really wanted to do. Um, and that was the honest truth of it. And so I was going to have to figure out a way to withstand these this, these uncomfortable things or these challenges or whatever whatever was going to be in the way, it didn't matter. I was going to have to try because when I really was honest with myself, that's exactly what I wanted to do. Any job, I think, takes you away from your family. Every job has sacrifices in it. So I wanted a job that I knew that those sacrifices were worth it. And for me, that was working in the space program. 
Um, I, so I wanted that 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 meaning, and I think I think you're you're right. It's that it's having it's not just it's not doing something, but doing something that has meaning to me. It's like a job versus a, um, uh, what do we what, you know when you when you when you have a, a something you're 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 very meaningful to you and you're in your work. I'm, I'm searching for the word and can't think of it. Um, well, so it's sort of like, but, but you know, so, something that's something that's important to you. It's not just your job. It's it's very meaningful to you. And and like I, I like people have many interests. Like so, you were uh, you know you mentioned astronaut education. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll throw out baseball again. Yeah. Um, and, or you could have been um, you could have worked at IBM. Like you could have mm-hmm. done something with your mechanical engineering yes. degree or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, it seems like you kind of look at your interests and you say, okay, interests are one thing. But if if I can also interest plus meaning equals the thing I'm going to pursue, and that's yeah. what you basically did. Anyone who is at the top of their game, who are very what we can see to be the most successful people in the world, politicians, whoever you want to list there, um, they're not people who never failed. They're people who never let failure stop them. And you can be sensitive to it. I'm fairly sensitive to when I fail. I feel bad about it. Some people maybe don't have any regret. I don't know when it doesn't go. But I think most people have. A, have a little bit of regret with when something goes wrong, but you can't let that stop you from pursuing your dream and and moving on. Uh, is that something you can um, almost practice? Like how you like because I imagine the first time someone fails in a big way at something that's important to them, they're lost. They don't know mm-hmm. what to do yeah. to come back because they haven't developed that skill. It's it's not like a talent one's born with. And maybe there's a little bit of nurture and nature in there. Mm-hmm. But how do you build that skill to come back? I, th- I think it's just keep trying things that are going to challenge you. It'll naturally failure will naturally happen. <laughs> I don't think you have to right, plan you can't it. avoid it. Yeah, I want to plan. You know, I mean, it always sneaks up on you. You know, I think that disappointment and failure happens all the time. We don't have. To, that's one thing we don't have to try to find. Right. You know, I think it's going to find you uh, easy enough if but, you're trying. But, if you're not, if you're not trying. So I think the idea is to try to challenge yourself and put yourself in positions. Uh, you know, and for me, wanting to be an astronaut put me in positions where I did things I would never do if if it wasn't because I wanted to fly in space. And and, and, and so it put me in these uncomfortable situations that I that I was able to overcome because I had this motivation. Uh, to to want to do that, but and, and this sense of meaning to it, yes, and sense of meaning because I, I knew this was important, so I was willing to take it, and I think that that that's maybe what 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 maybe people might want to consider is that there are gonna you're gonna take your lumps if you're gonna try to be successful in anything, I think eventually you're gonna you're gonna have setbacks. You know when you when you were um, you mentioned when you were you were a rookie astronaut mm-hmm. and you felt um, and you used the phrase imposter syndrome mm-hmm. like you felt like you didn't necessarily deserve to be out there with all these like mm-hmm. expert spacewalkers and and pilots and commanders and so on and do you think it's when the imposter syndrome finally wears off that you say okay I mm. did I'm not an imposter I did it and now I'm gonna go to the next mm. thing where I'm, I might be an imposter like what is imposter syndrome like how do you get over I it I think. It's hard, you know. I think it, it's maybe I've become more comfortable with with uh, with who I am. Maybe I don't know. This is interesting. Do you charge uh, for this therapy <laughs> session here? Yeah, well, because you're making me think. Actually, it's really interesting. Your question is because you're making me think of, in ways of things that I haven't really thought before in any other interview, which is interesting. So many good things with this clip from Mike. I just I love this episode. One thing in particular, I'm going to read to you. Anyone who is at the top of their game, who we would consider to be one of the most successful people in the world, he says, they're not people who never failed. They're people who never let failure stop them. 
This is so important. I mean, I hear this again and again. I feel so blessed that I get to talk to these people, but now you also get to listen to what they're saying. You hear it the same time I do. They never let failure stop them. And combine that with doing what you love to do. Now, how do you know what you love to do? I think that's a really hard thing. I think you don't always know. I think for myself, I don't always know. For instance, at the beginning of this year, 2017, and now it's the end of 2017, I thought what I really wanted to do was to write a novel. And instead, I got obsessed with two things, stand-up comedy and cryptocurrencies. And so the question is first, how do you find what you love? I think every day you sort of ask yourself, what's pulling at you? What do you want to read about? What do you want to look at? What's important to you? Just start every day practice listing. What are these things that you really value? And then start making decisions that move you closer to them. Mike really valued being an astronaut, but he kept failing at it. He couldn't even pass the eye exam. How are you going to be an astronaut if your eyes don't work? So he kept making decisions over and over again that moved him closer. Okay, let's get a PhD in space robotics at MIT. Let's start doing these weird exercises on your eye so that you could be the one person in history who, who actually improved their eyesight without surgery. So and then eventually enough things added up over years, over a decade or more, where he became an astronaut. And even when he was out there at the Hubble Space Telescope, he failed at first and he had to overcome that failure. But practicing overcoming failure is how you get good in general overcoming failure. Every day we fail a little bit. Always overcoming those little instances of failure give you practice to overcome the big instances of failure. And that's what allowed him to become an astronaut. The next clip I'm going to talk about, not only a great guest, not only a peak performer, but one of my closest friends, Tucker Max. I'll give you a little story first. This is the way I got to know Tucker. Somebody trashed me on Twitter over some book I wrote. And I made the mistake of responding back. This was like in 2010. It's a long time ago. And I get an email the next morning from Tucker Max. Somehow he had found my email and wrote to me. And uh, he wrote me a real nice pick-me-up letter. He didn't, he didn't have to write it. He said, listen, you're a good writer. Focus on the writing. The haters are always going to try to bog you down. You have to decide whether you're going to let them take you down or whether you're going to focus on building up your skill. Don't let people bother you. Don't let people drag you to their level. We got to know each other after that, and he's become a very good friend. He's come on the podcast, I think, like five times. He's also helped me get on many guests. Uh, most recently, he introduced me to Tiffany Haddish, who came on the podcast. So now let's listen to this clip of him from uh, episode 221. You're worried about input? I'm worried about input. That's why we succeed. Everyone I've ever... You want to look at... If you want to boil it down to one thing, a binary thing, people who succeed worry about input, People who, who don't succeed are worried about output. Okay, so let me, let me understand a little bit more. What do you mean by input? 
I mean like the, the work you're doing, yeah. right? So uh, if you want to produce great writing, the only way, the only way to do that is to worry about the act of writing. What am I trying to say? How am I saying it? Who is my audience? Those sorts of things, right? But most people with writing think about, oh, like, the, like they look at my stuff, for example, uh, and they'll say, oh, well, he, I get drunk, I fall down, I yell curses, I'm going to write really arrogant things about that, and then I'll be just like, I'll get the same attention Tucker Max gets, right? But none of that ever worked. No one has ever replicated anything I did because of exactly what you said. They looked at the surface things and they just replicated those things. They didn't actually understand the underlying um, the under the underlying input. The input was I was opening my soul in a very entertaining, funny way for people. You open your soul in a way that is very engaging and motivating and inspiring and 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 almost uh, awe inspiring in your vulnerability. Right? They're totally different, but they both people stop because we help them understand things about themselves and feel things they want to feel and either escape or or be inspired. Right? Those other people aren't doing that. They're trying, they just want the result of that, right? They want the output of that vulnerability and that work. They don't want to actually put in the input. It's like, I think Mark Cuban's famous saying, everyone wants to be a star. No one wants to put in the work necessary to be a star. This is a key thing, is how do you, what is your identity? When I started writing, I was writing emails for my friends. And my only goal, my only measurement for whether the emails were good or not is did those nine guys think it was funny? And if they did, it was good. And if they didn't, it was bad. And that's it. There was no arguing, right? And it was easy for me to do that because I didn't define myself as a writer. So if they said it was bad, it didn't wound me. It was just this thing I did, right? It was external. I'm talking about being different, which is not the same thing as being better, right? Like you were the first one into your niche and like everyone who comes after you now is like, oh, he's just a low rent James Altucher, you know? Like, so it's like, I, I like, it's sort of like with me or with like, you know, how many people have tried to imitate Tim Ferriss or Malcolm Gladwell or whatever? Again, being not better, unique. You got to have a distinct voice. You got to say a certain set of things that no one else has said or in a way no one else has said them. That is what I think is relevant. And you, you want to hear, I'll, I'll give you this super trick to being original. It's really simple. Tell the truth. Like, you know, in this world, no one ever tells the truth. And so if you're willing to tell the truth, that not like, oh, here's my hot take. No, no, no. I mean the fucking truth, like the hard truth that everyone thinks and no one says. If you're willing to do that, people will think you're incredibly original. If you try to be original, it doesn't really work. I mean, there's so much to learn from Tucker, the guy's successful writer. I mean, his books have sold over 3 million copies. He's a very funny guy. He's made a movie based on his book. He's made a play based on his book. He's written, you know, of course, many books. And now he runs a successful company, Book in a Box, which allows people who aren't professional writers to also write potentially best-selling books. Again, I mentioned earlier, he introduced me to a great podcast guest, Tiffany Haddish, who's uh, one of the best comedians in the world. He helped her write her book, and it was a New York Times bestseller. So, but I want to talk about you know, there's many things to learn in, in the clip you just listened to, but let's just focus in on the one of the first quotes he says. People who succeed worry about input. People who don't succeed are worried about output. So what does that mean? Well, let's start from the back of that. People who don't succeed worry about output. 
I know so many people who, if you ask them, oh, what do you want to do? What do you, what do you, what do you want to do when you grow up? They say, oh, I want to be famous or I want to make a lot of money. That is worrying about the output. No one ever succeeds with that in mind. When you worry about the input, you think, okay, if I want to be a good businessman, for instance, I need to learn about sales. I need to learn about negotiating. I need to learn about how to develop a product. I need to learn how to raise money, sell my company, manage employees, communicate with my shareholders, communicate to my customers. There are so many micro skills in every important skill. And that's what people don't realize it. Like for instance, if you're interested in tennis, you can't say, oh, I want to win Wimbledon. You have to say every day, how can I make my serve a little better? You need to learn for every important skill, all of the sub skills that are required when together will actually make you a peak performer. And so that's what Tucker means. Whatever you're interested in, whatever you're trying to get better at, even if you want a promotion at work or a raise, or you want to be a kinder person, or you want to get married and have kids, start thinking, what are all the sub skills you need to improve to get better at? Again, so many sub skills when added up together, make a peak performer. I'm really glad Tucker put it in such a kind of almost intellectual way because I think it's worth breaking down a little further than that. But I've learned a lot from Tucker and from this clip. I hope you did as well. Again, that's episode 221. My next clip that we're going to show you is from an amazing, amazing human being. John Morrow has been essentially paraplegic almost since birth. He has created such success for himself. And you know how he created that success? Created that success purely by helping others. If you want to listen to the whole episode, you can go back to 226, but here's my favorite clip from it. It was when I got into kindergarten, another kid called me disabled, and I said, what does that mean? And he started laughing. The kindergarten teacher came over and said, you don't know what that means? And I said, no. And she said, well, I think you need to ask your mother. So I went through the entire day, first day of kindergarten, just being baffled and confused about what this whole disability thing was. And I went out and I asked my mother, what does it mean? She thought about it for a minute. And she said, it means you can't do something as well as someone else can. I said, other kids can walk around and I can't do that as well. She said, that's right. She said, but it also goes the other way. You're really smart. You can do things with your brain that other people can't do, too. And she said, everyone in the world can't do something as well as someone else. So everyone, mm. in a sense, is disabled. So so, so kind of, um, kind of the flip side of that is you kind of take an inventory of what you maybe can do yes. better than others. Do you think everybody has something they can do better than others? I think so. I think everyone has something. Um, and the key is to find that something. And my entire life, my, my mother, my teachers, I had tremendous teachers, developed my, my sense of, here are all of the things I can do. 
with my brain. I can program computers. I can write stories. I can do all of these incredible things. And so when I grew up, I had a sense of self-worth and confidence. I knew that I could contribute something to the world. And so I wasn't depressed. I was frustrated because I knew I could contribute, but I was trapped. So I started blogging, and within two months, I got nominated for, it was like a Webby Award for the best new personal finance blog in the world. I started getting all this traffic, um, and I started getting offers from other big blogs to write for them. So I started saying yes. And some of them even offered to pay me. And I, and I said, well, you can't pay me, but I'll tell you what, if you like the article, one day I'm going to ask you for a favor. And you can't say no. And so I started writing articles for these sites. I became one of the most, if not the most popular writer. At Copyblogger, I'd become the most popular writer on the site. Um, I was editing other people, and I trusted Brian to one day repay that to me. And he did. I mean, a hundred times over. So as soon as... He, I, he put out an article saying, you know, John's open for business. Is it the kind yeah, of consulting he lived? What kind of consulting did you offer? At first, I was offering, I'll, I'll critique your blog for 99 bucks. So I did that, and he put it out there, and I got 300 people within 24 hours. Wow. Who wanted me to do it. So what, that's like $30,000. Yep. Um, so I started doing those consultations. People loved it so much. They said, can I pay you for another consultation next month? I started creating more courses. And within nine months, I'd made like half a million dollars. For me, the reason why I was able to achieve everything I achieved, if I failed, I was going into a nursing home. That was the scariest thing imaginable to me. Hmm. I, I, that was the gun to your head. That was the gun to my head. Oh, that was an intense clip and a podcast to do. Again, that was podcast number 226. John was a real inspiration to me. If you look at how did he achieve success, the guy has made millions of dollars by blogging. And you know how he's done it? Only by helping others to write better and to build businesses around their writing because of this whole blogging internet thing was was blowing up. So John started consulting to people and then he built up his own super blog and it was all through networking. It was all through being kind to people. It was all through being persistent, not being angry if anybody rejected him. If you want to succeed at anything in life, I'll tell you one thing for sure. 99 out of 100 people are going to reject you. Nobody wakes up in the morning saying, oh, I want James Altucher to succeed today. Nobody has done that ever. You have to get rejected again and again until you show that you deliver so much more value than could possibly have been imagined that they have to accept you. And that's what John did over and over and over again. Now, why did he do it? Well, I mean, sad. In, it's sad in this case, or maybe he may not view it this way, but... I think many people would view it this way. He literally said he had a gun to his head. It was either this or end up in a nursing home. 
I mean, I am, again, really grateful John came to the studio to to be interviewed. He certainly didn't have to say yes to that, but he did because, again, he wanted to help people. He wanted to come on my podcast and send this message out to everyone who was listening. So, John, thanks a lot. So now for the next guest, one of my favorite people in the world. You might never have heard of her, but you have heard her. Nancy Cartwright is the voice of Bart Simpson. She's been that voice for 29 years. I still quote her every single day. I'll tell you the quote. If you surprise yourself, you'll surprise everyone else. All right, here's the clip. It's from episode 258, 258. You're right about Bart Simpson and the journey. I believe as an artist, you have to do the work and then throw it away. And then you have to just go in and be there in present time and just trust, trust that Mm. what I have done is going to serve me, serve me best. I mean, even when I went in for The Simpsons, I went in for Lisa, and the audition pieces of Bart and Lisa were sitting right next to each other. Hers said, eight-year-old middle child, his a 10-year-old school-hating underachiever and proud of it. I'm like, oh, bam, bam, that's it. (laughs) And that was was my trusting my instincts, because I believe that's true, really true for all of us. There was a book I read. Linda Opst wrote this book called Hello, He Lied, and it was about writing and producing. She says, ride the horse in the direction that it's going. And I thought that was amazing. So, okay, I'm going in this direction, you know? <laughs> That's incredible. You could do those sounds all day. And uh, I was just like, listen, <laughs> we go to Cheers for a second? Because Cheers was a remarkable story. You audition. Oh, my and God, you- James. <laughs> no, let, let me tell the story. How do you know? You audition, and then you were just supposed to walk off the set. But you have this urge to kind of, I think you have this urge to infuse an extra bit of art into everything you do. You not only walk off the set, you not either the stage, you just walked home. I did. I did. Because the last line in, on the, in the script, in the audition, Carla, who's Rhea Perlman, turns to me and says, I like your choker, referring to a necklace around my, which I didn't have on. And I look at her, and as written, I say, I'm not wearing a choker. She goes, oh, you will be. And I, I turn, I say, well, goodbye. And I turn, and you're right. I just walked out of the casting office, and I just kept, I just went home. Was that a riff in the sense that you just decided right then you were going to just keep on walking? Well, this is something that Milton, actually, I got to credit him for doing that. Milton Katselis, a great acting teacher. Yeah. Uh, some of my favorite actors studied under him, uh, uh, Gene Hackman, Alec Baldwin, Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, Doris George Roberts. Clooney. Yeah, so, exactly, exactly. And incredible teacher that you had mentored yourself to who encouraged you to, to see Lestrada. You know, he says, think out of the box. Surprise yourself. Do something, you know, because you surprise yourself, you surprise everybody else. Huh. And so I just thought, I, I, it was very, it was very um, on, at spur of the moment. It was, I had not decided to do that. I just said to myself, you know, I'm out of here. I say the F-bomb right there. <laughs> I don't know if we can By the way, you like to say this podcast is where the Wild West. Okay, of I said, media. fuck it, man, I'm out of here. And so I just walked out the door and I kept going. And I mean, that creates an effect because they're thinking I'm going to come back in. And obviously, by the time they realize I'm gone, I'm already way, I'm in my car. And I drove, I actually went right home and the, literally the phone was ringing and it was my agent. Nancy, you totally walked out. They love you. They want you. You got the job. <laughs> oh because, because, and you just said two things there that are very interesting to me and it, and it applies to everything else. Uh, when you surprise yourself, you're going to surprise everyone else. Yeah. So I think that's, that's kind of, that's so interesting. Like that's, 
you could apply that to almost every area of life for for yeah. success. But but the other thing is your uh, instincts are correct. Yeah, yeah, and and you 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 created an effect, and that's they have to talk about you after that. And so the <laughs> casting director has everybody has to talk about you a little bit more than they talk about everyone else. Yeah, and that we don't know if that's what got you the role. You know, as opposed to your pure acting skill, but I'm sure the, the just the psychological fact that they had to put more time into talking about you, you know, yeah. help them make their decision. It's so true. I mean, it's not something that if it's calculated and it looks like it's staged, it doesn't create that effect. To me, it really it has to be something that is so sincere and it has to be really it has to be honest. It it can't be something that you that's calculated. What an inspiration, Nancy Cartwright. I mean, she did the voice of Bart Simpson, and then, heck, why not just make a movie on the side this past year while working on 100 billion episodes of The Simpsons? 29 years in a row. There's so many different things I could talk about when it comes to Nancy. But I think deep down, everyone listening to this is an artist. Even if you don't really think you are, I know... There's things you've wanted to do, things that you could explore, things that you could pursue that are in the direction of your own personal art. I don't mean be an oil painter. I don't mean be a sculptor. Do whatever it is that gives you some artistic contentment. So one thing I want to say about Nancy is she looked in every direction. Should she be an actress? Should she be a filmmaker? Should she be a voiceover artist? She ended up being all of these things. 30 years after she realized she wanted to be a filmmaker, she made a film. It's amazing to me. Here's the key. And this is what she says. The journey of an artist, you have to do the work and then throw it away. And then you have to just go in and be there in present time and just trust that what I have done is going to serve me and serve me best. Often we create one piece of art and we think to ourselves, oh my gosh, if this is not the best thing I've ever done and it goes viral and everything, then I've failed and I'm not an artist and then everyone hates me. No, that's step one. There's 20 more steps to go. It's the input that counts, not the output. Don't have a scarcity complex. Don't think this is the only idea you're ever going to have. Never think this is the only opportunity I'll ever have in life. You're going to have many. If your art and your skills get better and better, who's competing with you? Nobody. At some point, nobody will be competing with you. You will be the peak performer. I've been writing for a long time. Took a long time before I published my first book. Took a long time before I had a super successful book. You know, I, I was interviewing. I've been interviewing people for a long time, ever since I was at HBO in the 90s. But now I'm super excited about the interviews I do with this podcast. Not that I was failing all the time before. You have to celebrate small successes. But you just get better and better and better. And that's how you become the artist, the entrepreneur, the athlete, the actor, the writer you want to be. It's the journey. It's the persistence. It's the resilience. It's facing failure. It's improving your skills every day. It's building a community around you of other artists which is what Nancy did, you know, if you notice all along the way, she found mentors, she found people to work with, she found ways to improve her skills, and gradually in every area of life that she wanted to be an artist, she became really 
the best, the best in the world. So that was episode 258. The next clip I want to show you is a real personal one to me. He's not necessarily a peak performer or not one that anyone listening might know, but he was one of my closest friends in the world. He got diagnosed with terminal cancer and hearing him talk about it now and his own reactions to it has really inspired me, inspired me enough that I asked him to come on the podcast. So it's a very unique clip. I hope you enjoy it. It's episode 288, so it's not so long ago. And here it is, Mike Van Cleef. I've got on the show a very special guest, Mike Van Cleef. Mike, how's it going? It's going very well, thank you. So, Mike, I would think it's fair to say 20 years ago, we were probably like best friends. That's definitely true, yes. We used to go to comedy clubs together. We worked together. We'd play chess together literally every single day for years. Yes. This is probably like a three-year period. Something like that, yeah. We went to Aspen, the Aspen Comedy Festival. Probably traveled around other places. I can't remember other, other places. But we lost touch as these things go. We got back in touch a year ago, and we're talking and talking and talking. And then you were like, oh, that's right. You don't know. I've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Yeah. And this was just about a year ago, maybe less than a year ago. Yeah, it was nine months ago. It was in February. Yeah, nine months ago. And when they first diagnosed you, correct me if I'm wrong, you were given a few months to live or six months to live. Well, they were unclear about it. You know, I mean, because there's just a tremendous amount of ambiguity with cancer. I mean, what I did know was the average life expectancy of somebody in my situation was 14 months. What kind of cancer was it? It is, well, so it was actually seven and a half years ago, I got thyroid cancer and 99% of the the cases is beatable. It's fairly common actually, uh, as far as cancers go. So let's look at like a best case scenario. You're looking at a maximum of three years. That's about right, yeah. And what happens then? <laughs> like you'll, you'll, your cancer will be um, spreading and there's no way to stop it. Can they, can they go back to old drugs and see if those work? No, I mean, really, honestly, really bad things happen. Uh, and so they will uh, revert to surgical procedures. Uh, to kind of scrape out cells that look bad? Yeah, I mean, so they'll start off doing radiation treatments. So they'll start doing that and that's very effective. But at a certain point, you reach the maximum amount of radiation the brain can have, and then the brain just starts developing other sorts of radiation-related problems. So they'll start with the radiation treatments, then they'll finally go to surgical procedures where they actually just go in and cut out the cancer cells. Uh, But eventually it just becomes whack-a-mole because it develops very fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so then, you know, there's kind of two choices for me. Both are really unpleasant, uh, is that I'll either have uh, massive brain failure uh, or I will have uh, spinal failure. And that really just means that my, my bones will, my spine will break into pieces and I'll become paralyzed and, and eventually the you know, organs and stuff will shut down because it'll kill the mm. nerves. Mm. And so I'll die that way. So um, that's all fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, Good morning. <laughs> what was, when you first realized the full potential outcome and, and depth of what was happening, what was your first reaction? My, literally my first reaction was, I thought of all the people I wanted to see and I realized uh, that I, I wouldn't be able to see them. And so, you know, going- Because there were so many people? Yeah, and actually going just slightly back uh, when you were asking, what did they tell me? Uh, at one point I said to the, the doctor, when she just said, well, you already understand it. And I said, well, like, 
you know, can you give me a sense like, you know, six months, 12 months, or, you know, should I keep working? Should I you know, do this other stuff? And she said, uh, I can tell you this, I would strongly try to enjoy the next six months of your life. Mm. And that was really the strongest thing that she said at that stage. But again, that matched up with the numbers. And so I knew that, you know, if untreated, it would get, you know, the, the, the end that I just described would still happen no matter what. So I already knew that. And so then I was just like, how could I see, you know, every person who was important to me? And did you get scared? Were you more scared or sad? <sighs> Numb. Because what sounds scary is not so much the death, but correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't been through this. What sounds scary is not so much the death, but the pain of the death. But what sounds sad is the not seeing people you want to see. That that was that was my overwhelming feeling before the party, you know. And then after the party, you know, I I saw everybody. But you know, like for instance, I think of life, and I think, okay, I'm 49. There's still a whole potential second half to my life. Mm-hmm. Anything could happen. It could even be more kids, or there could be more jobs, more opportunities, more things to be creative about. Um, what did you specifically stop thinking about or stop hoping for or stop being anxious about? Well, I mean, that process was slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the first couple months uh, before, even before the party, I, I mean, I just became a complete mess. Uh, and it was really just What does shock. that mean? I mean, well, I was, I was drinking too much. I was, you know, not doing anything, uh, just partying, trying to, you know, just figure stuff out, talking a lot, crying a lot. Uh, uh, I always find, I can always tell over the years if I'm going through a really tough time, if I cry while I'm watching Modern Family. And I don't know what it is. Every once in a while in Modern Family, I'm just like, oh, <laughs> Phil loves Claire so much. I just can't stop crying, uh, which I always think it's funny. That's the one show that makes me cry sometimes. Uh, but so I just kind of this, this mess. And I really don't remember that stage very well, honestly. I was just completely in shock. One thing that people always say to me is, you know, I can't imagine what it would be like to go through what you're going through. And to what I always say to them, neither can I. Like my brain can't fathom it any more than your brain can. It's just this fact that is unimaginable. And I was talking to a friend of mine, she's a psychologist. Uh, when I first met her, uh, first time I'd ever met her, she said, uh, and this is right after I learned, I was, so I was very negative and she was like, you know, hey, Mike, is there, uh, I mean, is there anything positive? I mean, I know it's a weird question, but is there, you know, any goodness that's come out of this? And I said, well, yeah. I mean, the one thing I realized is that the only thing that matters in life is relationships. And, and then, you know, we talked about that for a moment. And then about an hour, two hours later, we're, we're you know, it, it actually gone inside. Uh, we're at a cafe. And, and she said, you know, earlier I, I heard you say that what's most important to you is the relationships in your life. And I really, I mean, I just met her, so I couldn't say anything. I didn't think I could say anything, but I really got annoyed with her because I was like, no, I most certainly did not say that. I did not say what's important to me. I said, it's very clear to me that this is the only thing that's important. And, and, I, and it's funny, I keep having these conversations with people all the time and I, people kind of are like, yeah, that makes sense, but it doesn't really register because you just behave differently if your relationships are the most important. The desire to connect with the meaning overwhelmed the time I had for the meaningless. Instead of thinking what you're going to miss or what anxieties you're going to get rid of, you just, you focused on today, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, I'll let you continue. I'm just trying to understand it. Today, um, 
how can I add to the meaning in my life today or what will provide meaning today? Right. Well, that was certainly a moving podcast episode for me. It's a moving clip. I mean, honestly, Mike and I have been friends for such a long time and he essentially has a I mean, we all have a death sentence on ourselves. We're all we we know intellectually we're all going to die. But we kind of live under the illusion and it's a healthy illusion. We live under the illusion that we're going to live forever. I certainly don't think I'm going to die anytime soon. And I know most listeners don't think that. But Mike actually has a death sentence on him. And I'll tell you one thing Mike's told me, which I found incredibly valuable, even in my relationships, in my business relationships, in my personal relationships, in the work I do. You can never, you can never mortgage your happiness today in the hopes of happiness in the future. So that's that's what he told me. Because you you only have you only have your happiness today or you don't. And if you're gonna risk not having your happiness today, well today might be the last day of your life or the last or one day of the last month of your life or who knows. Not to be depressing. You don't want to be it's not you don't want to be depressed when you think about happiness in this way. But it's so important. I find so many people say, oh, well, I I have to do this lunch. I, I said I was going to do it a few weeks ago, and so now I have to do it, but I don't really want to. Or I have to go to this party because it's a birthday party, and they came to my birthday party. Or I don't know, I, I have to do this job. It's I'll just do it for a few years so I can make some money, and then I'll go off and do what I want to do. Ah, You don't know. You don't know if a few years if you have a few years from now. Whenever you say that, you're mortgaging your happiness now for happiness in the future. And I I repeat this line to myself every single day. With every single one of these clips, with every single one of these podcasts, they always give me information, quotes I can use that really have enhanced my life. And so again, this podcast is not about, oh, Here's interesting person XYZ. Let's interview them and find out about their biography. That's not why I do this podcast. I do this podcast because I'm really curious about how I can make my life better. And if I make my life better and I'm doing it while recording it, I'm hoping also it's making your lives better as well. We're all in this together. I mean, the hard thing about life is that it's every single day. You kind of have to do the best you can every single day. Forgive yourself when it's not the best, but I hope with these quotes, again, I'm not going to give up my happiness today just so I could be potentially happier tomorrow. Now, what does that really mean? It means, oh, here's an example. I like a woman, and if she just changed A, B, and C, I'm sure I'll be happy. Or if she just liked me a little bit more, I'm sure I'll be happy. That's an example of mortgaging your happiness today in the hopes of having happiness in the future. And I can't say I'll never do it again because I'm I'm certainly guilty of it many times, but uh, I hope I'll never do it again. Anyway, thanks, Mike, and I hope you stay alive as, as long as possible. Next episode or next clip 
I was so excited to get this guy on my podcast. I mean, I've known him since 1997 on and off, but such a pleasure to have him on. It's on episode 24. This was one of my first guests. Check it out. Here's a clip from Mark Cuban. My initial motivation was surviving and paying my bills month to month. And literally, you know, that's why I live six guys in a three-bedroom apartment. You know, we used to take turns writing checks to each other. So we'd have a little bit of float time till the till it cleared the bank and, and use that to pay our rent. Um, you know, never take out more than $20 when we were going out so that we wouldn't spend too much money that we didn't have. I mean, I had nothing. And so I just wanted to make enough money every month to pay my bills and then slowly but surely grow. And then my next goal, once that started to happen and I got into year, you know, three and four and five, my goal really wasn't to, to be, you know, a million, have a million in the bank or two million or 10 million. My goal was to retire, but my parameters were that I was willing to live like a student. And so, you know, I felt like, okay, if I could get to a million saved, then I can live like a student. And back then interest rates were a lot higher. So I thought, I, okay, I can live off $100,000 a year at 10%. You know, then I got to 2 million, then a little bit more, then a little bit more. And then I retired when I sold micro solutions because that was my goal. I wanted and, and to retire when you by the time I was 35 and I made it just right around, right before 30. And how, how did you, uh, how did you get the idea even to sell micro solutions? Did someone approach you or did you start? I'm totally fascinated by that initial 2 million. Yeah. Well, actually we sold the company for six. I took 1 million and distributed to the 80 employees. And then I had, I brought in a partner who was a tech partner who I split the rest with. And so I walked away with 2.5 and a little, right around two million after taxes when it was all said and done. I'd saved up, you know, over a million dollars by the time we had sold it, because um, we were doing really well. We, in the history of Micro Solutions, we never had a losing month, let alone losing quarter or year. So I was really able to save a lot of money um, as it got towards the end. Go back to that feeling of that first million from Micro Solutions, uh-huh. and that first feeling from. When you first made a million at Microsolutions and when you first made a billion off of Broadcast.com, which was better? Rank them. Oh, the billion by far. <laughs> I don't know. The, the freedom fun. of the million would feel the really good compared to the billion. billion. Right? It was just like, oh, my God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love this. My life has changed, but i got to keep on working because I haven't hit my goals yet, and there's so much more I want to do. The billion was I can't – believe it. I was literally, um, I was sitting in front of the computer naked, hitting the refresh because we were close, waiting till my <laughs> net worth hit that billion when the stock price got to a certain point. And then I kind of screamed and jumped around um, and then got dressed. <laughs> did, did you hit the sell button right there? Like, okay, oh, a no, billion no, no, on the no, mark. We were still going. I still had, you know, I had to get enough so that after tax, I was still worth several billion. So I still had a lot of work to do. And, and plus as a public company, you know, a real quick story. When when we went public, um, we we went out at 18, and we the first trade was at um, 62 and three quarters, and it got as high as 72, and then traded back down to 62 and and I think three quarters. And I just remember my first thought was, oh my god. My second was this this was the biggest first day jump in the history of the stock market. I was very, you know, we were we were freaked out and and right. crazed about that. And then 
I was like, oh wait, somebody bought this stock at $72. I gotta get my ass back to work because they have a lot of expectations and you know, I really felt an obligation to everybody who owned the stock. So it wasn't so, you know, obviously, you know, my, my net worth was a motivation, but I wanted to make sure nobody felt guilty for buying broadcast.com stock. And so that was all, that was just as big, if not more motivation. So they were, I wasn't, I wasn't sitting back when I hit that magic number and thinking, okay, this is it. Let's get out. I mean, well, well, then it was good that you, you sort of outsourced the problem to Yahoo and they took care of you. Like they, they that stock went up quite a bit after you sold to them. Yeah, everybody thought I was an idiot because <laughs> I co- I collared my stock six months afterwards when I was first eligible to, and the stock kept on going up. And they were like, "You idiot! You you shouldn't have collared." I'm like, "You know what? I've been through this before. I was trading stocks in the a little bit in the '80s. I don't know if you remember." Um, there, you know, when the PC companies first started going public, Dell Computer, um, Microsoft, there was a company called Eagle Computer, which was a hot clone. And the guy, unfortunately and tragically, the night before his IPO was to price, um, he died in a car wreck. And but at that point in time, every PC stock was just off the charts. And then in the late '80s, early '90s, every networking company just just blasted off and just went through the roof. And then in the mid-early 90s, before the internet boom, all those networking companies just took a tumble. And so when we sold and the internet boom was really just going crazy, I was like, you know what? I've seen this movie several times already. There's no question in my mind how it's going to end. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover my stock. I'm going to put a, um, a hedge on. And you know what? I'll, I'll be just fine with, with my net worth. And a lot of people said I was crazy, and then, you know, the whole Internet bubble burst, and, you know, I was one of the few guys that were was able to survive it. Well, again, I feel like you get uh, the short end of the stick in terms of public opinion on that because people said you were crazy, then people said you were lucky, even though it took a lot of skill. You know, and, and luck obviously and timing have a lot to do with it, and people are always going to say that, but the reality is, you know, you – Luck is a matter of scale, but effort is, is everything else. And, and you know, it wasn't my first company that I sold. It wasn't the second company that I had sold. You know, I'd been through it multiple times before, but I busted my ass to get there. You know, what's great about Mark, first off, he's kind of funny how he was just so driven for the billion. But what's great about Mark is that he's in direct contradiction to some of these earlier clips that we have. For instance, Nancy Cartwright talking about the journey of an artist, Tucker Max talking about the input versus the output. It seems from this clip that Mark Cuban is essentially saying, oh, I want a billion, I want a lot of money, so I'm not going to rest till I get it. He was very focused on the output. But was he? I mean, in order to get the output that he wanted... He had to learn a lot. He had to learn a lot about computers during a time when computers were in their infancy in terms of wide mainstream use. He had to learn about the internet. He had to have extreme business sense, so he had to learn all about business. He had to learn a lot of micro skills in order to be at the right place at the right time. Everyone always says, oh, this is a guy who was lucky. I hear that so much over the past 20 years about Mark Cuban, and it's just not true. I know the guy. It's not true. In chess, there's always a saying, only the good players get lucky. Mark Cuban's a good player. There's a lot to learn from him. 
I loved listening to this podcast. And, and you know, when we were preparing this 300th episode, just re-listening to episode 24, reminding me of, of when I started doing this podcast, I was so nervous to interview him, even though I already knew him. And I was in a train texting back and forth with him, like, when can you come on the podcast? And he said, well, how about in an hour? So I booked myself a hotel room in the city, went to the hotel room, got, had, fortunately had a computer with me and started the interview. I was prepared and always focusing on the skills and the micro skills and the everyday improvement. That's how you get lucky. The next guest, also a billionaire, Ray Dalio is episode 290. It's the largest hedge fund manager on the planet. It's worth about $20 billion. There's a lot to learn from him. I also recommend his book, Principles. So let's listen to this clip. I mean, the education system does not reward having failures and learning from failures, okay? It rewards you get the right grade and you are smart and Johnny gets a pat on the head and that's what we get. And if you fail, you are stupid and so on. Well, the real world doesn't work that way. The real world is anybody who's going to do something audacious and great is going to fail and that they have to know how to fail well. They don't have to know how to struggle well. These things are not taught to us. To me, I think life is a different thing. You have to step back and then have your adventure. You know, go experience that. Maximize your evolution. Maximize your learning. Maximize your experiences. I like what you said earlier, Ray, about how it's never too late, but it's hard to all of a sudden be radically open-minded about obstacles, about pursuing new dreams, about starting from scratch. What are some ways for people to gain the courage to start this? Well, first of all, being successful is hard. Having a life that you want is hard, but it's a lot harder not to have the life you want, right? Each person has to decide for themselves. Well, that was a tiny clip. I encourage you to listen to the episode, uh, uh, episode 290, just a few episodes ago. I think there's so many things to learn from Ray. I mean, one of the things he told me is pain plus reflection equals progress. So if something happens to you, let's say you get turned down for a promotion or you uh, don't publish a book that you thought would get published or you uh, made an investment that didn't work out or you were into a relationship that didn't work out, that's pain. Reflect on what you could have done better. Now, you can. it's so easy, and I would say the average person does two things. The average person either blames someone else, and I shouldn't say the average person, but many people I know certainly do this. They blame someone else or they say, oh, it's never going to work out for me. I'm just not that type of person where these things work out. That's not reflection. Reflect on what you could have done differently. It doesn't matter whether it's in the middle or the beginning or at the end or long before the beginning. Reflect on what you could have done better, what you could learn now. And basically what Ray says is pain plus reflection equals progress. That's how you have progress in life. That's how you move forward. Another thing I like, and this is from the clip, you know, Ray says education does not reward, the the current education system does not reward having failures and learning from failures. And it's really a shame. Like my daughter will come to me and she'll say, oh, I didn't do so well on a test. 
and I'll say, what did you get? And she said, I got a B minus, but usually I get an A plus. And I'll say, congratulations, honey. That's, this gives you an opportunity. An A plus doesn't give you an opportunity. If you got every question correct, you, have, you don't have an opportunity to actually learn more than you know right now. With a B minus, what happened? Did you not study as well? Did you not understand the question? Is there some deeper thing about the way you could have done that answer that you didn't know? Like, really spend time and look at the things you did wrong. I mean, we're going to get to a, a clip later. Gary Kasparov, the world chess champion. I can speak to this one a lot because when I was a kid, I was a ranked chess master, which was good for a kid. And I will say, I didn't really learn from the games that I won because I won them. I thought I was great. But when I lost the game, man, I was upset. I would play through every move in that game. What did I do wrong? I would take that game to a chess instructor. What did I do wrong? I would look through books with similar positions. What did I do wrong? It's really understanding failure and how failure helps you to learn so much faster than success. This is a real key quality to everything Ray was saying in in the podcast with him. And that was, again, episode 290. I, I, I highly encourage people to listen to that episode. That guy is just a genius. But probably the smartest person I've ever had on my podcast is this next clip, Naval Ravikant, the founder of AngelList, an early investor in Uber, an early investor in Twitter. How does a guy like that get so smart? Well, we talk about it in episode 263. And you'll listen to a little bit of it in this next clip. So, so let's switch for a second to Bitcoin because you've mentioned you've been spending a lot more time on that. Maybe, you know, you've explained it to me before. Mm-hmm. I've read all about it. There's articles every day about it. It's, as you say, it gets more and more hot. It's $2,000 now per Bitcoin. It's still, I think, a hard concept to grasp. It's an incredibly hard concept. I think by the time everyone can grasp it, it'll be done as an investment. <laughs> right? So what is a Bitcoin? Um, so a Bitcoin. There's uh, uh, <laughs> a coin in my pocket. Yeah. Right. Uh, okay. So let's back up for a second. So uh, you know we have this thing called speech. It's the stories that we monkeys tell each other, and it sort of creates the world around us. Um, we agree your name is James, therefore your name is James. But there's no James that ob- that exists in objective nature, right? This is a story. Uh, we agree that Angelus is a corporation, but Angelus doesn't exist in real nature. It's just a, a story that we monkeys tell each other. Um, so these stories are kind of the history of how humans cooperate to take over the world. Um, you know, there's a great book called *Sapiens* that lays this out. But Yuval's been on the podcast. Fantastic! He's a, yeah, he's, a, he's one a, of the best books ever. Yeah, he's a hero. But uh, um, you know, essentially, humans are storytelling monkeys that used uh, used the fact that we could tell stories to gang up on every other creature on the planet. Uh, Neanderthals on a battlefield, you can only get 150 Neanderthals on a battlefield fighting together because that's they're related by blood. And every other creature on the planet gangs up and relates with each other creatures by blood. If you're not blood tribe, you're enemy. Uh, humans are the only ones who can create a story called Christianity and now 5,000 Christians show up in a battlefield and fight the Neanderthals. So stories and speech are very important to the history of the human race. And then after speech, we sort of ex- invented exchange, we started trading goods. We got specialization of labor, and that's kind of how we evolved. 
And we've had this thing called money this entire time. And money is sort of the store of value where you can say, well, I need to save something for the future. And I don't want to, and I'm a baker. I don't want to just stuff bread in the closet because it'll go bad. So I need some way to store it. Money is a unit of account, which is I want to trade my bread for your shoes. How many breads to shoes? I, I don't know. You know, let's let's try and figure that out. And there's a medium of exchange. I don't want to carry. Uh, you know, I don't carry bread to your house every time I need a pair of shoes. I just want to be able to carry something more convenient. Um, so money serves these three important functions: medium of exchange, store of value, and unit of account. Uh, and different things. And there's always been a money as long as there have been humans telling stories. You can go back a hundred thousand years, and people were using shells as money. Uh, then for a long time, they're using gold as money. Uh, and these things, yes, they have a little bit of intrinsic value, but there's not a lot of intrinsic value to shells, right? So it's well, why do people? Why do like uh, gold? Uh, like there's so many aggressive gold investors out there who say, "Oh, this has intrinsic value," when it's just essentially uh, the, a rock. It is a rock. The intrinsic value of gold is somewhere between sixty to hundred dollars an ounce, depending on which analysis you do. And the price of gold is between thirteen hundred to fifteen hundred dollars an ounce. How do you define intrinsic value there at all? Uh, intrinsic just, value is just the jewelry use case or the industrial use case as an industrial metal for creating circuits or um, or because someone in India wants to wear a gold jewel gold big gold chain or something like that. Right. So uh, there is some small intrinsic value, but it's tiny. Most of the value is the money value, the store of value value. Um, so, and so gold was money. And then somewhere after uh, somewhere about 40, 50 years ago, um, we switched to just paper money. And paper money backed by nothing other than thin air. Yes, we say it's the full faith and trust of the U.S. government. Um, I mean, one giveaway is you look at a U.S. coin and it says, in God we trust, e pluribus, uh, and from many one and all that. Well, anytime anyone appeals to God, what they're basically saying is, just trust me. And you know, I, I bring you power from God. It's like the divine right of kings. Kings used to say, I get, I, I get to rule you, not because I'm the strongest or the baddest, but because God wants me to. It's a way of scaring you and, and you know, putting them in charge. So now we trust money just because we should trust the government. The government says trust God. So that's 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 what we have. We have pieces of paper we're getting passed around. But when somebody gets to dictate what money is, that is enormous power. And whether that's the U.S. government, whether it's bankers, whether it's the Federal Reserve, that power gets abused. Um, so who is the biggest debtor in the world today? It's the U.S. government. Um, and uh, what are you holding all your wealth in? It's in paper that's printed in their name that, that they back up. So they have a strong incentive to debase that currency, and inflation is inevitable. Well, With, what's the incentive to debase it? To, to By debase, you mean make it... Have less value, less value, that. yeah. To inflate it away so that you, your debt essentially becomes cheaper in real terms. I see. So, so, so if you if the value of the dollar goes up and you owe all this debt, it's harder for you to make the money to. That's right. Pay you back end up debt. underwater. That's why there's a there's a target rate of inflation, uh, you know, of two, three, four percent a year that the government's always printing more money to kind of cheapen the currency. Uh, but if you anyone who has common sense knows the real rate of inflation in the last decade has been a lot higher because all the assets like real estate and stocks and so on have shot up so much. Uh, companies, it's harder to buy anything real um, because the government sort of charges, uh, uh, cracks inflation only against goods uh, that are actually going da- that are being driven very cheap by technology. Right. So many products that I would think of buying. Have been driven incredibly cheap by technology over and time, and they and they would be like even a computer or a TV or that's a right. phone, and they instance. would be even far cheaper if we hadn't just been printing lots and lots of dollars along the way. So right now we're in the greatest monetary experiment in human history, where the Federal Reserve has printed so much money to bail us out of the last financial crisis. It's all gone to bail out the banks, and under the theory that'll trickle down to the rest of the economy. 
Um, I won't even get into that, but in some, you know, there are some interpretations out there that that peg that as the largest theft in human history, and not one out of a million people can understand what happened. Uh, John Maynard Keynes actually famously said that, uh, um, you know, if you if you steal a dollar or something, he made some analogy. I'm paraphrasing, but he was basically saying if you steal a dollar from somebody, they'll recognize it immediately. But if you steal it by just printing lots and lots of money, nobody will understand it. Not one man out of a million will understand it. Um, so basically, what Bitcoin is, Bitcoin is a realization that code is just speech and money is just code. So money is just speech. And this is a very hard concept to yeah. grasp. But like when, I don't understand what you just that's said. That's right. So when I when I when I give you money, what I'm really doing is I'm saying I'm taking credit for work that I had done in the past and I'm passing you that credit. So I'm saying, hey world, I know I did something good for you in the past, and that's so, why I have money. So you gave me. So well, it's like let's say I I baked bread, and so I did good for the world, and I sold that bread and I got money, and the money was basically the world saying, hey Naval, we owe you something for baking this bread, and then when I give you money for something, then I say, hey James, for your advice and help, I'm giving you the money. Now my the the debt the world had to me for the bread that I had made, I now give to you. So hey world, you owe you owe James that money. That's just information. Or that value. Correct. That's just information. That's just a story. So I may have transferred that story and proven that I transferred it to you by giving you dollars or coins or electronic numbers in a bank account. You proved it because I accepted it. You accepted it. I, I, I also felt it had the same value that you felt because we believe in the same story. Correct. So this is just a story. Now, who enforces this story? Now, later, uh, I say, no, you know what? Actually, I didn't give James the money. He didn't actually help me. And you're like, yes, I did. Now it's an argument. So, of course, there has to be some way to prove it. So the easy way to prove it is that it's passed you a piece of gold. And gold is scarce, so I can't fake and create more gold easily. And so you produce the gold so you have the money. And now we do that with dollars and we do that with numbers and bank accounts. But fundamentally, underneath money is just a story that we tell each other. And so if it's a story that we tell each other and it can be written up in code and transferred around, why can't we just keep a giant ledger? Now imagine this, this sounds like insanity, but let's just keep a giant ledger of what everybody owes to whom and what credit everybody should have. So if we had a giant book in which we could just write down and you and I could agree that in this book that Naval gave James the money and so James has the money, well, that would be amazing. That would be a huge achievement for society. Um, because and, explain why that's that's a huge achievement as opposed to you just giving me a dollar bill. The reason it's an achievement is because when I just give you a dollar bill, the U.S. government can go off in the corner and print a zillion more dollar bills and devalue the credit that you have. But if it's just like a giant ledger, then nobody can devalue the existing people in the ledger. Um, unless unless somehow there's the the faith in that ledger goes down. Correct. So what it, what what it boils down to is who's going to maintain and own that ledger. And today, the governments of the world do it by issuing paper coin. What Bitcoin basically says is we can create a marketplace in which all of us working together using code and encryption and software agree upon that ledger, make it ironclad, immutable. So we make it a perfect ledger. So, 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 and, and, and let me try to see if I understand from here. Um, Everybody essentially has to see and agree to the transaction between you and me. Correct. So everybody keeps a copy of the ledger. And everybody 
sees what changes are made in the ledger. And everybody has to agree upon that change for that change to be recorded in the ledger. And the encryption's there, so they don't know it's Naval paying James for X. It's not really necessarily that. Uh, the, the Bitcoin is not that anonymous. There's a new currency called Zcash that is far more anonymous and, and encrypted that way. Basically, there's a lot of work going on inside Bitcoin, a lot of fancy computer science, lots of computers around the world crunching away. Uh, it's probably the largest single purpose compute network on the planet today. Um, but what, is, what the computers are doing is they're making sure that, okay, when Naval pays James, do we all get to see that? Do we all agree that that was Naval paying James? Uh, can can we prove? Can do we have Naval certainty? Do we have his signatures, electronic signature, beyond shadow of a doubt that he actually meant to transfer that money? Do we know that he didn't also send money at the same time to Kamal on the side and double spend that same coin? So by the time we figured out that he's done, he's actually stolen two entries in the ledger. Do we make sure he had the money in the first place? It's kind of all of this very difficult stuff. And then we write it into the ledger and we seal it. We seal it with computational work in such a way that even all the computers in the world today thrown at the problem can't undo that ledger entry. And so Bitcoin is a giant electronic grid that is building this perfect electronic ledger of debts and credits to track who has paid who how much money. And This is a question I always have, which is, if we all have have this ledger, essentially every kind of Bitcoin is yeah. encoded with this ledger and updated with it. Oh, isn't there the danger that there's going to be billions of transactions in here, so that it's going to be too hard to update all around the world? Uh, yeah. So what ends up happening is that there's a few giant computers that keep a copy of every transaction, and in my iPhone wallet where I'm carrying, you know, I can carry Bitcoin. Uh, it doesn't need to keep a copy of every transaction. It just keeps a copy of the most recent one. And then at some point, at some cutoff date, it says, well, before that date, I trust this larger computer in the cloud that is keeping a copy of all the transactions. And is there a danger if that larger computer or set of larger computers is somehow hacked by a bad actor, like let's say a, a government or something? No, that system is really well designed. At this point, it's hit escape velocity. You could take all the NSA computers and throw them at Bitcoin Network and it wouldn't make a dent. Uh, and it's very distributed, so there's lots of these large computers around the world. And the people who run these large computers are called miners, kind of like a gold analogy, because they get paid in new Bitcoin for, in exchange for running these computers, uh, it, you know we can go. We can spend hours. It took me forty hours of like intense work, including like reading CS paper, computer science papers, to figure out enough about Bitcoin that I felt comfortable at least being semi-intelligent about it. But uh, I would say that the net result is what Bitcoin ends up being is electronic gold. So gold has a number of very nice properties. It's very hard to create new gold. Uh, it's very easy to test that, yes, this is real gold. You can divide up gold into pieces. Um, it's anonymous in the sense that uh, if somebody else had the same brick of gold before, I don't know that. Uh, so it's kind of washed clean every time somebody reuses it. Um, so it has all these nice properties. And Bitcoin has all of those same properties, but much better. So with Bitcoin, I can def- I can divide it all the way down to fractions of a penny, or I can send you Bitcoin that's worth a billion dollars. Um, I can transport it very easily, and unlike gold, I can carry a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin in my head just with a pure passphrase that I've memorized, like a Swiss bank account in your mind. Um, I can test your Bitcoin very quickly to make sure that it's real with any cell phone or computer. Uh, I can, um, you know, I, it, it's it's not completely anonymous, but there are ways to make it more anonymous. And like I said, there are other currencies like Zcash and Monero and a few others that are more anonymous. So it's it is the electronic gold. 
the only problem and it's superior to gold in almost every possible way, and it can't be inflated away. And it's basically replacing the role of money being created by institutions like the governments, and instead money can be created by markets and by people and by computers. So here's what's the interesting thing about that clip. I had a choice between two clips, one where he talks about his success, the other where Naval and I talk about Bitcoin. Naval and I have been friends for a long time. And I chose the Bitcoin clip for you to listen to because I think Naval is one of the best guys out there in the world in terms of understanding Bitcoin. I wanted him to explain it to you and and to me. I want to talk about the other clip, the clip I didn't choose. Again, I encourage you to listen to the episode. It's episode 263. And one thing he says in that other clip, which we didn't air just now, but I'll address it anyway. He talks about one of the keys to his success is that he learned the importance of who you do business with is just as important as what you choose to do. This is so incredibly important. I can't even stress it enough. I mean, I've been involved in so many companies in the past 20 years, and if there's just even one toxic person in your business, your business is going down. There are almost zero exceptions and Naval expressed that very well. And that's not just true for businesses. It's true for everything in your life. Judge a person by who their friends are. And I think it can't be underestimated who you choose to spend your life with, who you choose your friends to be, who you choose to go into business with. This is so much more important than how much you know about investing, how much you know about products, how much you know about trading or bitcoin sports or whatever it is you know acting writing whatever it is you're trying to succeed at first and foremost focus on who you're spending your time with this is critical so naval i hope you come on the podcast again soon i know you will We've already spoken about it but that's episode 263 now the next clip you're going to listen to is with one of my closest friends, really, and it happens to be Naval's brother, but it's Kamal Ravikant, author of Love Yourself As If Your Life Depends On It. I had a backpack, and I had two, three thousand dollars in my name, and I just lost my job. And I sort of went off on this journey where I climbed in the Himalayas, went to Tibetan monasteries, went to uh, end up in Spain, ran, you know, and end up walking this pilgrimage in Spain called the Camino de Santiago, completely accidental. It's funny, when you let go, is when we let go, is when all things just start to happen and all the realizations come and just life just starts to work more. You define let go, use another phrase. Uh, forgiveness, for example, is a letting go, mm. right? Um, saying yes to life and not fighting it, not resisting what's happening. I think that's a key theme in this book and oh, I've learned. What does that mean, it's, saying yes to life? It's actually something that a monk told me years ago and I really learned that as a core theme in this book. I, I remember asking him, uh, I was a bit of a wise ass, I think, but I really meant it. I was like, how do you, he just looks so calm and peaceful and so joyful. I was like, how do you find peace? Because his life was not easy. And I was like, how do you find peace? And he looked at me and goes, easy question, huh? And I'm like, eh, you know, if I'm going to ask you a question, that's the question. He said, okay, I'll tell you. He said, I say yes. To all that happens, I say yes. And that literally is a secret. Because I think a more, so, much for, so much of our pain uh, it comes from resisting what's happening. 
Mm-hmm. It's not giving in and saying, yay, you know, like, okay, let me just, but it's like being in the moment, saying yes, and then coming from there, what do I want to do? That's a place of power. A lot of great quotes in that clip. That clip comes from episode 202. Um, let me know if you want come on the podcast again. Uh, I'd like to have him on. Um, just tweet at me after you listen to this. Hey, bring on Kamal again. Love to have him on. And Kamal works with me right now on the crypto-related or the Bitcoin-related newsletter that we do. And we've worked together on a lot of projects. Again, it speaks to the quality of the people you work with becomes the quality of your life. And Kamal and I have had great success together because we're such good friends and we trust each other so much that it's a pleasure to work with him. But I'll tell you a little story about that's not in this clip. I was going to San Francisco. I wanted to get together with him. I had never met him. We'd only been communicating by email. This is like, I don't know, six years ago. And I'm like, what's going on, Kamal? I haven't heard from you in a while. I'm coming to San Francisco. And he's like, oh, I'm sick. He was so sick, he could barely get out of bed. And then I went to San Francisco. I was supposed to meet him. Uh, Naval, his brother, who you heard earlier, organized a little party. Kamal just simply didn't show up. The next day, finally tracked Kamal down, met him, and he was feeling a little better. And then I spoke to him a week later on the phone. He was better. And I spoke to him a month later on the phone. He was all better. And I'm like, what happened? And he said he just started looking in the mirror every single day and saying, I love myself, I love myself. Or or he was talking to the mirror, so I love you, I love you. And he was saying that over and over again. And I'm like, oh, that's a great story. I want to write about it. And he's like, you know, I think I'm going to write about it. And I'm thinking to myself, darn. But I encouraged him, write the book. such a great book. He did write it. It's been a bestseller ever since. By the way, it's only like a 60-page book, so it sort of showed me you don't have to write 250-page books anymore. You can write a 60-page book and and make a great living off of it. He still makes the equivalent of a great living off of it, and this is five years later. So it's a lot to learn from Kamal. That was episode 202. That was his second time on. It was after the release of his book, Rebirth, which was his first novel. And now Kamal and I work together on so many projects. We probably talk every day. I'm really blessed to have a good friend like that in my life. My next guest, oh man, this was a hero of mine since 1983 or 84, Gary Kasparov, who was the world chess champion for so many years, maybe pound for pound, probably the greatest chess player of all time. So honored to have him on my podcast. But let's listen to the clip. From episode 227, Gary Kasparov. I want to emphasize what I said about fear. Mm. Because, you know, uh, fear of making mistake almost guarantees mm. your mistake. Uh, and um, Why is that? Uh, because, you know, it, it paralyzes you. It's, it's, it's um, you know, game of chess is a game of choices. So you have to make decisions. You know, every move is a decision. Okay, In the openings, you can follow the fa- the famous lines. You know, in the end game, you can just follow the sort of the the um, end game manuals. But in the middle of the game, you know, you're on your own. You have to make you know choices. Sometimes choosing between you know roughly even options, and it's all it's always about risk. You know, especially if you want to win the game. And uh, making decisions, you know, you have to be confident that your decision is good. And if you if you fear uh, that your decision is not good, if you fear that it you know you can lose the game. Somehow, subconsciously, it paralyzes you. It just it 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 um, inflicts a damage 
to, to the decision-making process. So that's why if you can actually remove the fear, that's why I said playing machine, say you play, doesn't matter. You have to win one game. You, it doesn't matter if you lose nine, but just as long as you win one, you won the match. That could actually change the equation because it could, you know, uh, unleash an amazing power that is inside, but it's always being, you know, restrained by our fear. I, I kind of like this. How can, um, I almost want to have this just walking outside, you know, out the door and have that kind of power. How do you, how can you kind of um, hypnotize yourself in daily life to, uh, to avoid this fear? Uh, no, look, I think fear is always with us. I don't believe when some, you know, people say, oh, this man, this woman, they don't have fear. We all do have our fears. The question is how we can handle it. Um, I don't have a special advice. So is the, I do recognize our fears, you know, especially, you know, you, you, you grow up, you have families, you have kids, you know. Fear is, is just, you know, it's, it's, it's a normal element of our life. But when you play, you know, it's the, it's... At that competitive level. It's a competitive level. That, that's why it's impossible to play chess at my age, competitive level now, because, you know, you have so many other things, you know, that, you know, your concentration on the same, you have other problems, you have fears, you know, normally, because you grow up, you know, you have other responsibilities in your life. I'll tell you, after that podcast, I asked Gary, I said, I have a chessboard and a clock with me. Do you want to play one game of chess? And he visibly winced. Like he did not want to play me a game of chess, but here he was promoting his book on his episode. That was episode 227. He was promoting his book that had just come out about kind of the rise of artificial intelligence culminating in the computer Deep Blue, which I had actually helped work on just by coincidence and told him that in the podcast. And Deep Blue ultimately was the, the first chess computer to beat the reigning world chess champion, which at the time was him creating history. And uh, he did not want to play me, but we had a good, fun game. And uh, he won, of course, but it was so fun for me. I could picture the whole game in my head right now, but that would be a little bit more boring than actually analyzing what he just said in that clip. And it's so fascinating what he says. And you have to remember, when these guys at this level, world champion level people like this, or Sarah Blakely or Ray Dalio or... Mark Cuban, all these people, when they say something, this is from the point of view of someone who is the best in the world at what they do. So I, I really learned from, like when Gary Kasparov says, fear of making a mistake almost guarantees your mistake. Now, this is a very careful quote. It's not that you should never be afraid. It's not that you should assume you're never going to make a mistake. He didn't say that. But take into account and even list all the things that can go wrong in what you're doing and prepare as much as you can. If you're afraid after that, then work on your fear. For instance, I'll just give as an example again. I do stand-up comedy up to six times a week right now. The audience is an x-ray machine. They can tell if you're afraid or not. And they will punish you for that fear. They know and they will punish you. Life itself will punish you for fear. Don't put yourself in a situation where you haven't prepared enough that you're afraid of making that mistake. Prepare in advance for the possible mistakes you can make. And Gary's right. If you're obsessed with the fear of making a mistake, you will make that mistake. And then hopefully the next time, you'll know enough to prepare. 
But that was Gary Kasparov, again, a hero of mine, episode 227. Fortunately, the next clip is, again, one of the smartest people I've ever had the fortune to meet. It's episode 216, Yuval Harari, author of probably one of the smartest books I've ever read, Sapiens. And that's why I was dying to have him on my podcast. Fortunately, he came on. Here's the clip. The human superpower is really based on fiction. We are, as far as we know, we are the only animal that can create and believe in fictional stories. And all large-scale human cooperation is based on fiction. Money is probably the most successful story ever told because it's the only story everybody believes. I mean, not everybody believes in, in, in God or in the same God. Not everybody believes in, in, in nationalism, but everybody believes in money and in the same money. If you think, for example, about, I don't know, the Islamic State. So when they entered all these cities in Syria and Iraq, they destroyed government offices and they tore down statues and they killed people and so forth. One thing they never did, they never burned the money. When they entered the bank in Mosul, and found in the vault lots and lots of American dollars with pictures of American presidents and with slogans of Christian slogans about God we trust and all that, they didn't burn it. They took it and they used it because even the Islamic State believes in the dollar bill. So, so now I want to get into, you know, so in the second book, you, or in the first book, you bring us all the way to here. You get through uh, the agricultural revolution and the rise of kingdoms and empires and everything's there to sort of a support some kind of story like religion or nationalism or whatever and that mm -hmm. leads to wars and battles for resources you make one interesting point uh, or many interesting points but after the scientific revolution and after the wars of the 20th century war itself is diminishing now because as you point out it's not like china would invade silicon valley for its silicon, it's now everything's ideas and it's much more abstract, the, the resources we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you see a decline in, in international violence, I think due to two main reasons. First of all, nuclear weapons have transformed war between superpowers into collective suicide, which is why we didn't have any such war since 1945. And secondly, there is a change in the nature of the economy from a material-based economy to a knowledge-based economy. The main assets in the past were material, like gold fields, uh, gold mines, or wheat fields. And these are the kinds of things you can conquer through violence. You invade, say, in the mid-19th century, uh, so the United States invades California, takes it away from Mexico, and hey, we now have all these gold mines, we, we are richer. It makes sense to, to wage war. Today, more and more the main assets are, is, it, it, the main asset is knowledge, the source of wealth of California today is the knowledge in the minds of engineers and technicians and CEOs, and you just cannot conquer it by force. If the Mexicans reinvade to reconquer California, let's say they succeed somehow, they won't gain anything. I mean, there are no silicon mines in Silicon Valley. The wealth is in the minds of the engineers, and you cannot conquer it by force. So there are still places in the world where you have a lot of violence, these tend to be the places where the economy is still old-fashioned material economy like the Middle East. Oil fields, I mean, it still made sense for Saddam Hussein to invade Kuwait because the wealth is in the ground, it's oil, and you can conquer it. 
There are so many things you can learn from both reading the book Sapiens and listening to my entire podcast with Yuval. Again, that was episode 216. Talks about the history of basically Homo sapiens as a species. And when you read a history, it's one thing to just memorize all the facts, whatever. That's not the important part. It's what you can learn from the history. What's the direction that we as a society are going in? So Yuval, for instance, in this clip, talks about how it used to be the main source of wealth was something called gold or other resources of wealth, how how much you controlled land, how much you controlled wheat. But right now, we're evolving. And we're evolving so that the main asset you, the listener, and me can have is knowledge. How do you get knowledge? By reading, by listening to podcasts, by doing things. All of these things create knowledge. The one who has read more books and spent more time on gaining knowledge will always compete better against the literally the billions of people who don't spend their days acquiring more knowledge. That's my main takeaway from Yuval among thousands of takeaways. So look, whatever Yuval writes, I read. So I encourage people to do the same. The next clip also is very personal to me. Many of these clips are so personal to me. But I remember when Jim Norton, the super famous comedian, moved into town when I was in fourth grade and he was in fourth grade. And whenever someone moves into a new town at that age, they're always a little bit nervous. And I'm sure Jim was too. But he combated that nervousness with his just his sense of humor. He built up his sense of humor by combating that nervousness in life. And he was so funny. We all, right away, we all said, oh man, you're going to be a comedian. And since then, he's been on the TV shows Inside Amy Schumer. He's been on Louie. He's had his own Netflix specials. He's had his own show on Vice. He had his own show on HBO. The guy is just an amazing, funny, he's had two New York Times bestsellers. I never would have thought it when we were in fourth grade, to be honest. Sorry, Jim. Although I did know you were funny enough to be a comedian. Although... You, you you were so funny. We, we couldn't... We, the first day you moved in, Jim, we were all laughing so hard, it like hurt my stomach. But anyway, you were on episode 231. Here's the clip. You got to tell on yourself. Like, like, what gives me the right to judge? Who am I to act like I've never done anything sleazy or I've never said anything sleazy? So I make fun of myself. I give my own personal examples. And then I'll think if I'm doing that, at least I'm being truthful. And I'm not coming from a place of, I'm better than that guy. Like, who am I? My style is more I'm vomiting on myself and I'm picking up hunks of it and talking about it. If it's about you, then people can relate. Oh, yeah, that's happened to me and I don't tell anybody. But And, and it's, it's kind of a safe way for people to experience their own hypocrisy by having you tell the truth right there, up there. They, they project it onto you on the stage. What good advice and oddly the source of his humor what gives me the right to judge? Is it Jesus saying this or the most obscene comedian on the planet, Jim Norton? What gives me the right to judge? That's the source of his honesty. And ultimately, when you find that vein of truth inside of yourself, what you believe in, what you value, and the humility to realize you have no right to judge others, that's the source of either art or humor or business. Like, start looking inwards at your own truths 
before you start judging everyone else's truths. And then success follows. Jim's a great guy, a great success. I hope he comes on the podcast again. He was a, a good friend back in the day and very much enjoyed having him on. That was episode 231. So please listen to the whole one. He's been on twice on the podcast and uh, so happy to have him on and so happy to call him friend. The next episode I also call a friend, a very good friend. I just saw him the other day, AJ Jacobs. Such a creative guy. He's written so many New York Times bestsellers. And I really just wanted to dive into his process of creativity. I just think he's one of the most creative guys around. It's episode 261. Here's the clip. And AJ Jacobs trademark in your books, you're going to become the main character of your book. It's this it's this sort of humorous gonzo style, like, you know, a Hunter S. Thompson-esque, like you go to the right. thing and and write about it. And and so what what is it in you? What's the muscle? I uh, two things come to mind when you when you bring that. I mean, first of all, uh, another writer uh, I know who's great and whose name I'm forgetting now. He was one of the original Saturday Night Live writers and uh, Alan uh, Zweibel. Alan Zweibel. Uh, but I was on a panel with him once, and he had a nice quote where he's like, "The writer always has to have two heads, like the head that's in the experience." And then a head that's on the shoulder observing and being like, this is weird. This is interesting. This could be. And I actually think you don't have to be a writer. I think it helps everyone because it gives you perspective and it gives you stories for later. So I'm always on the lookout for ideas all the time. I want to go two steps back. How do you still come up with that initial idea? Like how someone listening to this can start coming up with uh, fun ideas of something that's worth exploring and yet so simple to explain? Well, I, I think one of the things we've talked about is the beauty of idea generation, like forcing yourself, again, uncomfortable, um, forcing yourself to do 15 minutes of, I, of brainstorming a day. And I try to do that. I don't always succeed, but like, you, you do know, do that. You do try to do that every day because I, I do. I try to do that every day as well. I know. I love that. And uh, and yeah, turning off all uh, uh, all electronics and just sitting down and generating ideas. As we've discussed, ninety nine percent of them are going to suck, but there's going to be that one percent. It's a numbers game uh, that's going to really right. work. Because pe people ask me, how do you? Because I write down ten ideas a day, and people ask me, well, how do you keep track of them? And I say, I, I don't. You're going to come up with 3,650 ideas a year if you do this or more. And maybe one of them is good enough to really execute. Also, execution ideas are part of ideas. So some days you'll come up with execution ideas on a prior idea that you feel inspired by. Right. And that gives you a chance to quickly test out. If you're good at coming up with execution ideas, it'll give you a chance to quickly test out if an idea is interesting enough. Like your idea about a book about gratitude where you kind of indulge and go into very deeply what the the roots of all these things that you're grateful for are, you were probably able to really test it out. Tell your wife, tell your friends that you trust, tell an right. editor, tell an agent, you know. I am all for that. Some people, I used to be so secretive about my ideas. It was pathological. Uh, and I'll give you an example. I My first book was about the eerie similarities between Jesus and Elvis. Uh, and it was based on... I don't remember that book. Oh, it was like a, you know, like a novelty book. It had literally 
800 words. It was like, you know, Jesus is the Lord's shepherd. Elvis dated Sybil Shepherd. That was like, <laughs> it was like, a, it didn't deserve to be a book. It was like, a, how'd you come up with that one? That one I came about because I was reading, weirdly, uh, an autobiography of Elvis's hairdresser. Again, just reading outside. Okay, how did, you, how did you pick up that book and start reading it? Like, uh, what, I, out of the 10 million books published last year, why would you pick up that book? That one was just because you, this is when libraries were still the main source. of. So I went to a library and I just picked up 10 books, which I think you do, right? And just yeah. flip through them. And find something that's interesting. So I found this, and I was like, that is crazy, but maybe he's right. Maybe. But, but, but you're not just flipping through the book with the idea to be informed. You're also constantly challenging what you're reading. It's like you said, you're finding the weird in what you're reading. Well, you're actively looking for ideas, not passively reading. I, I'm not even going to say actively looking for ideas, because it's not like you picked up that book saying, huh, I want to find ideas that I can use from this book. You're kind of actively looking for something unusual or weird. Right. That's true. Something that challenges your uh, conventional wisdom and your point of view. And so, and so so somehow you ended up with Sybil Shepherd and you connected that to Jesus was the Lord Shepherd. Like, how did you do that? Well, that one is like, you know, I find if you're going to do that kind of humor, uh, it's a pretty simple um, formula. You just write down on one side of the paper, everything you can think of to do with Jesus, and on the other side, everything you can think of to do with Elvis, and then find the connections. Okay, well then how did you connect Jesus and Elvis? Like, why Jesus? Well, that was because in this uh, hairdresser's memoir, he said that Elvis once looked at the clouds and said, I see a vision in the clouds of myself as Jesus Christ. I think I am the second coming of Jesus. So you thought... So, so, so I'm just going working myself th through the AJ technique. You thought to yourself that is such an outlandish statement that it's weird. So right. you, you put it in the category of weird, and then you ask yourself, "Well, is that true?" Yeah. And you have to really—that's how you get from that first kind of simplistic statement to this level of depth that that you get to that becomes funny and makes you a character. And, and in the case of your book, it makes you a character. In the case of the Ann Coulter thing, it makes you a humorist. Right. Uh, and with the books, you, you, you combine both. Well, what I love about this is that you have explained my... <laughs> my work style better than I could have. Like you have cracked the code and it's going to help me in the future. Or, but, or, or yeah. maybe it'll throw you off. Yeah, like, it might oh, throw no, a new tilt self-conscious. Yeah, now I'm, I'm falling too much into James's formula for my <laughs> technique. <laughs> but I think you're right. Like taking something that's said a million times and then delving deep into it and seeing it from a hundred different angles, that really is, that's very fruitful. AJ's such a nice guy. He's really one of the nicest people I know, like very sweet guy and always so creative. And I'm always just fascinated. Like if you take any of his books, there's hundreds of books out there like it, but AJ always has his one special trick, which I'm about to describe, which we talked about a little bit in the clip. When AJ writes, like his first book, for instance, The Year of Living Biblically, he spent a year living exactly according to the rules of the Bible. A lot of people have written about the Bible, for instance. A lot of people write about what it would be like to live a religious life. What made AJ's book so different? Well, he actually did it, and he documented the process. 
a lot of people think, oh, I can't paint, I can't write, I can't do this business. One thing you should realize always is process is art. Never forget those three words. Process is art. AJ didn't know what it was. AJ is not a biblical expert. And of course, that was a huge bestseller. Put him on the speaking circuit. It drove sales of the next five books he wrote. And his last book, it's all relative about how we're all related to each other. Again, amazing book. All of his books are amazing. I encourage people to read all of them. But what did he do? Process. He did the process and then wrote about the process. The process itself was the art for him. And that's what's so creative and amazing and even funny about his books. Why are they funny? Because he didn't know what he was doing. Funny is often when we don't know what we're doing, we stumble into these crazy situations. And that's what happened to AJ. And it made his books funny. It made his books interesting, creative, informative, knowledgeable, and understanding the fact that process is art. I keep repeating it. Process is art. Understanding that is what makes me feel like I could be a better artist. I always document everything I do, even the failures. In fact, most of all the failures. And it's that process that allows me to write stories, create podcasts, build businesses. So AJ's a living example of of this kind of success. He's going to come on the podcast many more times. We're going to start off the next episode of this kind of post-mortem of the first 300 podcasts, analyzing a clip from the one and only Gary Vaynerchuk. Here we go. Everybody who's listening right now is looking for trends. They're trying to walk to where the world is now, and by the time they get there, the world moved on. If you go to your thing and set a fucking flag on your thing, the world comes to you. Every kid I grew up with who got talked out of playing video games because they had to be a doctor or lawyer by their parents could have had the talent to make $10 million a year being an esports star. But in 1988 to 1993, who the hell knew that esports was coming? That's so important. And I think that's the point people miss when they hear entrepreneurship, when they hear hustle and grind. They forget that the person who loves what they're doing is going to beat the person who doesn't love what they're doing. It's funny for me that hustle and crush it and bro it up. Or I get why people associate that with me and I understand how I communicate. But if you asked me, somebody asked me on a podcast, if you can only pick one, self-awareness or hustle. I watched that one. And I said, self-awareness fast. And he was caught off guard. It's because if you don't know who you are, it's over. If you do not do the thing that you love and make either happiness of the journey or some side money or completely transform your life, that's on you. We are in full excuse mode. We are in full excuse mode. Like, what are you waiting for? Because I'll be honest with you. I just want everybody to hear this. I've never said this out loud. I'm pretty sure I've never said this out loud. I am trying to push people to do things because I'm selfish. Do you know how bad I want somebody to roll up on me at Disney World seven years from now when I'm with my kids on Space Mountain and say, yo, yo, Gary Vee, Gary Vee. And I'm going to be like, hey. And they're going to say, listen, in 2017, I listened to a podcast with James and you, and now I'm the biggest in the world. I am the number one foremost expert on Home Depot. (laughs) And Home Depot now sponsors me and I make a million dollars a year. I do it because I'm selfish. This last 15 minutes wasn't me being nice. It was me being selfish 
because I know it's realistic. But you know, this is a very important concept to me because when I wrote the book, Choose Yourself, everyone thought, oh, choose yourself. Is this all about being selfish? Shouldn't you like choose others or help others? But when you work on your own strengths and the things you're good at and your talents and you start sharing them, that's the way to choose yourself. And that's how you help the most people. You know, sometimes I worry about Gary Vaynerchuk. Like, is this guy going to work so hard? He's going to kill himself. But he he loves what he does. And he's really an inspiration. Not an inspiration that you should work 24 hours a day, but an inspiration that you should, that you should come up with creative ideas and then don't forget to execute on them. Execution ideas are simply a subset of ideas. It's not that ideas are worthless and executions everything. Execution ideas are a subset of ideas. And Gary's ideas are so creative. And the reason they're so creative is he does spend all day long coming up with ideas, meeting people. Those people give him new ideas. He combines ideas. He puts his brain to work coming up with ideas. And then he executes. So Gary and I both put out a challenge when we did our podcast. Don't just sit around thinking, oh, I should do a podcast. Get out the recorder on your iPhone, do two episodes of a podcast, prove it to us, and we'll go on them. Now, hundreds and hundreds of people responded. I've been able to go on some. He's been able to go on some. We're trying to fulfill our promise because we want to. But the most important thing is, with just those words, Gary... And, you know, a little bit me, Gary was on the podcast. Gary got people to actually do and start their podcast. With every idea you have, think of that very first, next, simple execution step. And by the way, Gary had a fascinating idea about what to do with old school brands like Bazooka Gum and other brands we remember from childhood or even 50, 60, 70 years old that I thought was brilliant. Listen to it on on the episode with him. It was really fascinating. And I think that's the type of ideas that will win today and in the future. So Gary's an inspiration. I love doing podcasts with him. We have another one coming up with him soon. And, you know, just as great is Tim Ferriss. I mean, that guy's been on the podcast a whole bunch of times. Obviously, he wrote The 4-Hour Body, The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Chef. One of my all-time favorite books, Tools of Titans, and also his most recent book, Tribes of Mentors, which I sort of view as a, a, almost like a, a sequel or an addition to Tools of the Titans. It's a must-read. You're really uh, living what you preach. Like You're really figuring out with everything you do how to go through this process of finding the exact right components, asking yourself what's the downside, what's the ask, and very important, what this might look like if it were easy. Yeah, and I'll add one more because you are really have been uh, inspiring to me and I think millions of other people in this respect. Another piece of it, which is just, it's a, it's a hidden gem and in some ways a key just sitting right there in front of us for most of our lives is what, what weirdness... Or I'm insulted now. No, no, no. This is going somewhere good. Let me finish. Like what weirdness or weakness that I've hidden or made an attempt to hide could I actually really dive headfirst into and explore and embrace and possibly share? I think that is a superpower. 
and you're really good at this. What right now are you terrible at? Uh, I uh, okay, all right. Yeah, I, I, I'm getting better. So I'm trending in the right direction. I think that I am uh, a work in progress with loving myself. I've never really had a fond opinion of myself. I've been very brutal and unforgiving. Have and, you valued that brutality in the sense that, oh, it's, I'm so bad at this, so I need to improve, so I'm going to no, boom, boom, boom? No, no, no. I mean, for the vast majority of my life, and by vast majority, I mean like to 35, age 35 and beyond, I viewed my emotional weaknesses and past trauma as something to be compartmentalized and locked away so that I could refine myself as an instrument for trying to help other people. I've come to realize that you can do a lot in this world uh, from the standpoint of achievement and creating things with, while just tolerating yourself. But if you really want to go a few layers deeper and help people with really profound trauma and emotional terrain, you have to go through that yourself. And so even if I don't care about myself, right, which is weird to say, but like this, this has been my internal monologue for decades. Like even if I don't care about myself, if I optimally want to help other people, I have to like go through my own kind of valley of death on this stuff. And how do you, how do you, um, how do you choose to go through that valley of death? Because often we don't know what it is. I, I'm not convinced. I know exactly what it is. So l- let me ask you this, and 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 then I promise we're this. <laughs> I actually have so many questions about tribe mentors. That's the the whole purpose here. But you know, the the, the great Lucille Ball has said, uh, you have to love yourself before you can do great things. Mm-hmm. And um, and of course, you went on to do many great things. But I kind of think also action precedes thoughts. So you have to do great things to love yourself also. So I'm, I'm unclear where I stand on the quote, but I see both sides of it. What, what's, what's your take? You've done great things, um, but yeah. you know, maybe, I don't know. What, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that quote? Uh, I, I don't think you have to love yourself to do great things, but uh, I'm also... Un- do you, but do you feel the opposite? Like, do you, if you is it easier to love yourself if you're doing great things? And and great could be defined in a number of ways. But let's say you're doing great things for other people. I think there are certain species of great things that are far easier to do if you love yourself, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything that includes or requires a level of empathy or compassion or walking a mile in someone else's shoes, uh, I, I I really believe that it's a it's a if not a prerequisite, a, a, a massive advantage. At the end of the day, I think that uh, there's also a question, and this is going to get really out there, as to how important the great things really are. Right? Like, who knows? Like, we could spend our whole lives being artificial, and then what were you when by the time you died? Yeah, you were, you were an actor. Right. And so, so, uh, I think... Some sometimes people give the advice just be yourself, and I think that's very hard advice to follow because we're all many things. But I think just hyper vigilantly trying not to be artificial is super important. It's hard for me to know who I am, but I definitely know 
when I'm being artificial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, when you're doing something that's discordant, right? Like when you have that internal conflict over something that you said or are planning to do or committed to, like you feel that, right? And um, I think part of the reason it's so hard to know yourself <laughs> is that everyone's a work in progress. I mean, like every breath you take, every say outing you choose, you leave at 1.15 p.m. instead of 12.45, like that's a life-changing event. Like the external world, your entire experience of that day is different because you chose a different time. And since you're a work in progress, it's very hard to know yourself, but there's certain deep essential characteristics or values or predispositions. And when you violate those, you feel the artificiality. And uh, or, or you don't because you're not aware, because you're because you're afraid to to not make money or you're afraid to lose your job or you're afraid to lose the relationship, you know, when when people see the real you. Even yeah. though that could be the most powerful potion for success. Look, there's no way to easily summarize what Tim and I talk about. We talk about maybe a hundred ideas per episode, and, and a lot of our episodes even have to be broken up into two. And we just have such a fun time together. I consider him a good friend. But one thing that always sticks with me, and I always quote it to other people, everyone always tells me, oh, well, you should do this because scientific studies say 53% of people have a better life if you do X or Y or Z. Here's what I've learned from Tim. All of those scientific studies, it's not that they're worthless, it's just they're not the end of the discussion. Ultimately, if you think something could be better for you and you've done the research, then try it, then do it. The best sample size is a sample size of one, and that one is you. Next guy that I'm super excited about, uh, Damon John's been on twice. I'm actually going to interview him again next week. He wrote the book, The Power of Broke. He has another book coming out called Rise and Grind. He was on episode 210, but he's been on another episode either before or after that. We, gotta, we, we have to really be comfortable with who we are as business people and what uh, makes us gets us excited. There are so many different ways and reasons why you succeed or fail. But, you know, if you're in a cubicle today and you're looking at Damon John, understand that Damon John is looking at Richard Branson and Richard Branson is looking at Bill Gates. There's always somebody else to look at as inspiration. But no matter what, you just have to learn from it and keep moving forward. You know what I mean? And you can't try to be like somebody else. You can't be a me too. You know what I mean? You have to be just focused on what you're doing and just stay the course. If it's going to be desperation mode, it has to be desperation mode of there's got to be a better way. Why wasn't this done? And if 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 nobody else is going to do it, then I'm going to do it. That's the only desperation mode there should be. It shouldn't be desperation mode like I need to be like you. It needs to be desperation mode of nobody else is doing this thing. Then I'm going to do it. So so while you were building up and you were feeling good, you were start, the, 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 the word was getting out, the clothing was getting out. You had to have bumps along the road. Like, what were the Many. times when, even after everybody else thought you were a success, where you were like, "Oh my God, I'm a fraud, and I'm gonna oh. get, I'm gonna go totally broke, and no one's gonna know, and it's gonna be super embarrassing." Oh, see, this is this is you know what the these are the this is why people listen to you so much because I told you don't ask me stupid questions, <laughs> and you are asking me questions that I've never really thought about. I don't think that has been asked before and it goes back to the fundamentals is, is what I'm saying we don't talk on a high level here we're talking about 
the fears that many people have because somebody said the other day that, you know, we all compare our blooper reel to everybody's sizzle reel. And my blooper reel was playing for many, many years. So Damon John, like many people, started with nothing. Grew up in a disadvantaged area, stood on a street corner, and simply sold hats. And then from that, created a $6 billion clothing empire. He did a lot of that in those first few years by, at the same time, working at, I think it was Red Lobster. Not everyone could go out there and raise money from venture capitalists. He had to reduce risk by keeping a full-time job, but then working really hard to build a side business. And then he just pursued everything he could. He pursued LL Cool J, who lived in the neighborhood, as a connection to support his clothes. He mortgaged his house. So I just said, don't take risks. But here, he got an order for, I think it was $300,000 from, I believe it was Macy's. He mortgaged his house, his mother's house, for $100,000, filled the order, got the three hundred, dollars paid back the mortgage. So again, he took risk, but it was a manageable risk. But one thing he told me was really interesting. He said money is a byproduct of energy, effort, and strategy. And before you start any business, take inventory of yourself. Because people don't realize this. Starting a business is hard. It is very hard. Really doing anything worth doing is hard. And in order to do that, you need energy. You can't run out of energy and expect to succeed. You can't expect something to be easy because otherwise everybody would be a super success. So you have to take inventory of yourself and figure out what you can improve. Anything in your life can be an asset or a liability. Do you have time? Do you have energy? Do you have education? You know, or at least skills in what you want to do? Do you have friends who support you as opposed to toxic people? Are you in the right location? Do you have the right way of thinking about business? Take inventory of yourself. Damon's a great guest. I'm really excited to have him on the podcast again. The next clip we're going to listen to is maybe my favorite human being in the world. Like, I love this woman with all of my heart and soul. Judy Bloom. I grew up reading her books. Her books were all about me in some way. While I was in fourth grade, she wrote Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. She wrote Blubber. She wrote Dini. She wrote Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And, you know, as I was figuring out puberty, she wrote books like Forever and her first adult book, Wifey. So literally, I grew up with her. Your fate was sealed at 25, and then you started, you said writing saved your life. And what what do you mean by that? It did save my life, I think. It, 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 it made my life, and it saved my life. I, I, until I started to write, I was sick all the time. Um, you know, I had two babies. I had a lot of responsibility, and I loved taking care of them. I still love babies. Um, but I was always sick. I just had one exotic illness after another. And once... Um, once I started writing, it was like I was letting all that bad stuff out. I was letting it out. It had a place to go. It didn't have to make me sick anymore. And and then I I how do you think didn't that works sick anymore? How, how do you think that works like biologically? Like why why do you think you didn't get sick anymore? Because I had 
<laughs> I don't know. I need to be on your sofa here. You need to be sitting there, doctor. Um, I, I, I feel I, like now I'm asking you a question you haven't been asked before because you, you paused. Well, yeah, I can pause. Right? I always pause to think about it. It's like every time it's the first time. Yes. Um, I, I think that I just, you know, found the satisfaction. Again, I, I just think it had a place to go. One thing you mentioned was as a child, you had all this creative energy and you were a storyteller then. So at the age of 25 or whenever you first started writing your first book, you, you kind of touched in, you touched, you touched back into what was, what you loved as a child. And, and perhaps that's a, a, a technique. Um, Yes, I felt, I also, I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot going on in my life. I felt lonely. I, I missed the friendships that I had all the time I was in school. Um, again, things were very different. You know, I tried to fit in, in my neighborhood, in my little cul-de-sac. And, um, I just, I'm, I'm a friendly person, and so I used to long for those friendships. And I didn't find the same kinds of friendships I had when I was in school, and and I miss that very much. Um, and I understand now how important friendship is in a life, no matter how happy you are with your family. And for 36 years, you know, I've been in an incredibly happy relationship. But friendship, um, friendship is really, really an important part of life. I think for everyone at every age throughout your life. So there's this idea, or I'm going to say I have this idea, that art kind of takes people to a dark place and then brings us back somehow changed. And I feel like in your last book and in all your books, but in your last book, I want to talk about particular in an unlikely event. You, you certainly do that because the, the, the dark place is the fact that we're all afraid of uncertainty and the uncertainty that could happen in our lives and, and the fear of it and how we deal with that. Would you say that's kind of this overriding theme of the book? Um, you're interesting because you're bringing up a lot of um, good stuff. I wish we had more time to talk about it. Is that the theme of the book? Well, again, I'm a person who never knows what the theme of her book is until I read it somewhere or somebody says it to me. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Is that what I was doing? It is very dark. Yeah. It's, it, it does take them into a very dark place. And... Of course, you know, the, the, the dark stuff is based on, inspired by the truth. I wanted to ask you, and this is like really just a personal question. I read that you and your husband lived together ever since your second date. And now you've been together oh. 36 <laughs> years. Like, Go ahead. Finish the question. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. No, so now you've been together 36 years. And so people would say that's like, you know, a very, um, you know, everybody now is like, you know, oh, you have to do, you know, you have to like really see if you like the person. How did you know uh, right away ah. that this is it? 
Oh, we didn't. We didn't. We were crazy. You know, it was the end of the 70s. It was in New Mexico. Things were different. And I don't know. I mean, yeah, we went out on a blind date on Sunday night, fixed up, by the way, introduced, really, by his ex-wife, which was very nice of her. That's out of her. And um, on Tuesday night... Oh, I was seeing someone else, and then he called after, and we had what we call then a late date, and, um, you know, again, it was such a different time. I mean, it was so completely different, and, yeah, he stayed over, and he never left, and that was, we will be celebrating 36 years together in a couple of weeks, so, and, and you know what, I mean, we did we did take a chance and, and it was crazy. And I would never recommend to my kids or to anyone else that you do this. But, um, what do you think makes it work for 30, 36 years? What makes it work? Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm asking well, totally getting, through selfishly. The, getting through the first years was, was harder because we didn't know each other and we had to get to know each other. And, and understand always that we respected each other and liked each other enough to get through that. I mean, that, that's the hard part now. Um, well now, you know, it's, it's so deep and it's so, um, important to our lives, our well-being, everything. Um, you know, I think the older we grow, we get, and the longer we've been together, the better it gets. And the more we appreciate each other. That's nice. Um, so when we, you get to be 77, you know, you and you start losing friends and you understand how important this is and how wonderful it is and how lucky you are to have it. And it's, it sounds like it's because you're really good friends with him. We are very good friends. He's really easy going. Right before the podcast, episode 141, November 2015, right before that podcast, something really bad had happened to me, you know, on an emotional level. I went on that podcast really with an agenda, not just not just because she was like my, my hero. Like I couldn't believe this person who... I'd read all of her books maybe 15 times each when I was a kid. So this person who I grew up on was actually going to finally talk to her, which is another great benefit of doing a podcast because I never would have been able to talk to her without this podcast. But on this episode, I asked her for advice based on the situation I was going through. And her answer, I, I still quote to this day, two years later. You know, it's great to hear why she went from her housewife life, which was kind of the norm in the in the 60s, to selling 150 million copies of her books and being the most prolific children's author in history. Part of that is because we should never settle for the norm in order to be, in order to live a fulfilling life. We're each unique. And if you stay with what society calls the norm, then all you'll be is within the comfort zone of society. You'll never be in the full potential of yourself. And so I learned that from Judy Bloom as well. Not anyone can sell 150 million copies of their books, but anyone can achieve greater potential by constantly stepping out of the society-programmed comfort zone. 
But anyway, I just wanted to say thanks to Judy for giving me that advice that I still think about every day. The next clip is with a good friend of mine. She's been on the podcast twice. I've been on her site thousands of times. I'm talking about Ariana Huffington in the next clip. So let's listen to the clip. It comes from episode 169. You've reinvented yourself constantly. What Obviously, something is driving you that has catapulted you to success on each new reinvention. What, what, do you, what, what has been this driving force since you were a, a young woman? And you're still obviously a very young woman, but... Uh, I'm no longer a young woman, <laughs> but I, I credit um, my mother for a lot of things because she always made my sister and me feel, even though we're living in a one-bedroom apartment in Athens without any money. She always made us feel that we could aim for the stars and that if we failed, she wouldn't love us any less. And that failure, she used to say, is not the opposite of success, but a stepping stone to success. So a lot of it for me had to do with um, pursuing things I loved, things I wanted to learn about. You know, I've written 15 books. They're all very different. They're often about things that I'm exploring and then I'm sharing my discoveries with my readers. And the Huffington Post was born because I really love bringing people into conversations and I could see conversations were moving online. And a lot of some of the most interesting people I know were not going to be online unless we made it super easy for them. And that's what the Huffington Post did. And so it everything springs from um, what I'm experiencing, what I'm learning, and how do I present it to the world? Well, and a lot of it, though, has been through reinvention over the years. Like, you've gone from book writing to um, television personality to politics, and for politically you've changed. How did you personally deal with the hard times? Like, did you get anxious? Did you get afraid? Oh my, what, what am I going to do next? Like, what? Did, how are you dealing with it? I've always had a spiritual side to my life. I've always um, had this belief that, um, as Rumi said, live life as though everything is rigged in your favor. Mm. And I've I've had so much experience in my life of things that seemed really dark that turned out to be the best thing that could happen. Like what? Like when uh, a man that I was in love with in my 20s that I was with for seven years, didn't want to have children, didn't want to get married, and I really wanted to have children, so I left him and moved from London to New York. So everything that has happened to me in this country, you know, being married and having my wonderful daughters, having um, uh, my career, the Huffington Post, my friends, everything happened because, in a sense, a man wouldn't marry me and I moved continents. So I, I really believe that very profoundly. So... It doesn't mean that you don't get anxious or afraid, but um, one of my favorite lines, again from my mother, is that fearlessness is not the absence of fear, but uh, moving on despite your fears. Hmm. And, you know, it's funny. So 2007, you, you collapsed from sleep deprivation, and which, as you mentioned, led to the, the writing of the book, The Sleep Revolution. Uh, you, you were so successful, and you've been so driven all of these years why do you think you were feeling, oh my gosh, I still can't sleep. I still have to keep moving. Like sleep deprivation is 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 not a, a disease. It's a symptom. The right. disease is some sort of internal motivation where you feel like you're going to be considered weak or not as 
prolific if you don't just stay awake and keep working. So what was it what was it causing you? What insecurity was causing you to keep moving forward rather than sleep when you needed to? I think it's actually something else. I think there is a collective delusion that we are all suffering from. Uh, that sleep deprivation is essential for achievement. And uh, that's a, a delusion that millions of people have now discovered are suffering from. It really goes back to the first industrial revolution. In the book, I have an entire chapter on the history of how we came to believe something scientifically false. And um, during the first industrial revolution, we started believing that um, we actually are like machines, effectively. And the goal with machines is to minimize downtime. Now, human beings are not set up like machines. So that's um, what became, um, for me, the big turning point, you know, after my collapse, when I studied the science of sleep, which I wasn't aware of, and realized that uh, sleep deprivation was, in fact, the new smoking. So often, when 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 we are sleep deprived, I can, I, I, I can guarantee you it's true of all of us. Um, we really live our lives in a in a way that is purely transactional, like getting things done, rather than being fully present and grateful and joyful. And right now, I don't want to live my life that way. And in fact, I can't stand myself when I'm sleep deprived because it makes me moody, it makes me more irritable, it makes me less creative, and it definitely makes me less less joyful. So bringing joy into my life is a big priority because I feel... What, what is joy? Joy for me is like uh, being fully engaged in what I'm doing, being fully grateful, not taking anything for granted. Life is incredibly fragile. Life changes from one moment to the next. And this moment is all we have. And my mother always used to say, don't miss the moment. And when you're exhausted, you miss the moment because you're just living in some fog, either of um, the past or the future. And for me, any, any hour of your day when you feel tired is really an hour when you're not living life to the fullest. One common theme is every one of these peak performers, people who are the best in the world at what they do, or people who are enormous successes, they always say something about failure. Like, I don't know if you remember from an earlier clip, Sarah Blakely's father, when she was a kid, used to ask her, now what did you learn today? What did you fail at today? Arianna Huffington says something similar in the clip you just heard. Failure is not the opposite of success, but a stepping stone to success. I didn't always believe that because failure feels really, really bad. You don't fail and you're lying on the ground crying and you're thinking to yourself, oh man, thank God I had this stepping stone to success. I just totally failed, so I must be on my way to success. You don't think that. It's really hard. But just remember a little bit what some of these people say. It's a stepping stone to success. Analyze why you failed. Read about things that could help you prevent failing again. You know, it's not that success is bad, and it's not that failure is good, but try to use it the best you can. So Ariana wrote Thrive. She also wrote a book called The Sleep Revolution. It almost seems like a cliche, sleep more. But I'll tell you something. I haven't been to a doctor 
since I was 18 years old, which is probably the most moronic thing I've ever done in my life, which is to not go to a doctor. At some point, I'm going to have to go. But last week, I had a particularly hard week work-wise. I was just doing a lot of things, and I bit off a little more than I could chew. I didn't sleep enough. And wouldn't you know it, two days in a row of not sleeping my full eight hours, and I got a cold. Not serious, not debilitating. It's getting better. But if you don't sleep, you're going to get sick. You're going to lose energy. You're going to be less creative. You're going to have less willpower. Ariana documents it all in her book, The Sleep Revolution. I'm really grateful for the two times she's come on on the podcast. Episode 169, check it out. She was such a great guest. Oh my gosh, this next clip is from Ryan Holiday. The man needs no intro. He's been on this podcast a million times. But when we started the podcast in 2014, he helped produce the podcast. He played the role of producer and helped book guests. So he's the author of The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic, Perennial Seller, Trust Me, I'm Lying, Growth Hacker Marketing. He's such a great guest. He's a young guy. He's so smart. Let's listen to the clip. Stoicism is, a, is what you would call a practical philosophy. It was designed by the Greeks and then sort of popularized by the Romans. And it's, it's, a, it's sort of, basically at its core, it just says, you don't control the world around you. You control how you respond to the world around you. Look, there's a philosophy design in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Things are bad, right? Um, and accepting that, you know, life is not always pretty, that horrible things happen, um, that, you know, uh, I heard uh, I heard a great quote the other day from uh, some Roman poet who was saying, like, life is one long struggle in the dark. I think there's a part of that to Stoicism. Think about the two most prominent practitioners of Stoicism. You have... Marcus Aurelius, who's the emperor of Rome, so the most powerful man in the world. And then he, his favorite Stoic was Epictetus, who was a slave who had actually been banished from Rome by a previous emperor. So it's just the fact that like you have extreme wealth and power, and they're using the philosophy and it's helping them. And then you have extreme adversity and difficulty and powerlessness, and they're taking advantage of the philosophy and it's helping them. To me, that's working. So it seems like a lot of this is sort of like how to internally be the hero in your own story. Yes. So often we're not the heroes in our own stories. We're we're, we're, we're the victim we're, most of the time. Yeah, we're the victim yeah. because a boss is telling us what to do or somebody's telling us what to do and we think we need to do it so that we can get to a certain point yeah. where we could then start being the hero. Yeah. But, but you can always be the hero in your story. Right. So that was from episode 238. Ryan, of course, has been on many more times. I think he's been on four or five, four or five. And he's certain to come on again. I want to just mention a little story about Ryan. I have a lot of stories about Ryan that I could tell. I could do a whole podcast with Ryan just telling Ryan stories I have about him. <laughs> That's kind of a fun idea. So, But I'll tell you one story. One time, Ryan was in town. And we were hanging out, and he said, oh, I'm going over, I'm going to make an appearance on Good Day New York TV show. It's the highest-rated morning TV show in New York. It's on Channel 5. So we walk over. I ran into um, the producer of that show, Steve Cohen. And, of course, I knew him because I had been on the show before, but this is the second time I'm seeing him. He was surprised to see me, and I'm like, oh, I'm here just to support my friend Ryan while he goes on the show. And Ryan did a great job. Steve and I got to talking while, you know, Ryan was getting ready. And sure enough, 
I persuaded Steve to leave the exciting and glamorous world of television, and now he produces you know so many of the guests and books all the guests and everything. So having Ryan in town basically has changed the life of this podcast in so many ways, and I'm so grateful Steve is on board now having left the TV show that Ryan was on. One thing I want to talk about with Ryan, Ryan's been kind of like a modern advocate of the ancient philosophy of Stoicism. You don't need to know the whole Greek history of Stoicism. Just read Ryan's books. Again, sports teams read it, among other things, because it's a great modern philosophy. It's a way to kind of positively look at the worst case scenario. Now, you see a lot of self-help books say, oh, no, visualize the best case scenario always. So that's what will happen. Control reality, visualize the best case scenario. No, no, you got to sometimes say, okay, you're feeling anxious. What's the worst that can happen here? And then think out what will happen and what your response will be. And that's often the way to be heroic. That's often the way to be the hero in your own story. A lot of times it's easy for us. When we're stressed out and anxious, we have two choices. We can say we're a victim Like, oh no, this person did this to me, or I'm born into this situation, or this has happened. Or we can be a hero. We can take action, and we can do something positive. That's really hard to do, but that's a big thing I learned from Ryan Holiday. That's in episode 238. Again, Ryan's been on a whole bunch of times. Every single time has just been fascinating. I think he's been on like six times. Hmm? We're going to look it up. I'll tell you in a few minutes. Well, it was four, five, or six. My next guest, this guy also has been on so many times. I think he's been on five times. He, he actually was pursuing the record of being on my podcast for the most time. So I, I don't know if he, if he wins, but Brian Koppelman is an amazing creative. You know him because he wrote the movies Rounders. He wrote Ocean's 13 along with his writing partner, David Levine, who also helped him on Rounders. Uh, he wrote the movie Solitary Man. He and David also have written and created one of my favorite TV shows, Billions. I'm sure they're going to be on again soon because uh, Billions is going to air and we'll have some fun announcements before Billions airs in February. He also has a podcast of his own and I've been on his podcast many times. It's called The Moment. So anyway, episode uh, 193, let's listen to the clip of Brian Koppelman. Suddenly... I was able to hypnotize myself again into belief by doing, by showing up every day. And instead of sitting around saying, um, the movie business won't hire me, the television business just fired me, instead what I could say is we wrote three pages today. All the artist needs is the idea that they believe in mm-hmm. and then to take steps to manifesting it, right? Because once an artist, a writer, a creator of stuff, the moment you have the new idea, if you commit to working on it, you change in a molecular way. Like you shift into the positive. I do anyway. If somebody's at home thinking about writing something, all that stuff is counterproductive. I believe it's not just counterproductive. I believe it's destructive. I believe that trying to figure out what the next thing in the collective unconscious is, is insanely harmful to the creative process. What you're trying to do is figure out what if you have a personal, deep need to express something because you're and and you have the skills with which to do it, that work will find some kind of home. And but I think it's also important to combine that with the right every day. Because even oh, if 100%. even if you don't feel today like anything fascinates you, 
um, still putting words on the page kind of greases the wheels so that when something does yeah. pass yeah. at you, well, you're like, ready. All right, I do morning pages the second I wake up, right? I meditate and do morning pages. And they're free writing three pages. And so I am really allowing my subconscious fears to show up on the page, but it's also your subconscious obsession. So why the morning pages are so great is they're a way to take your temperature. They're a way, after a little while, you can't lie to yourself in the morning pages, and so you start to become aware of what's painful for you, right? So you start to become aware. Like I've been eating uh, protein, mostly just protein and vegetables for the last month, and I realized t- today I really, really wanted to have a quesadilla. But I, I, I know that I don't want to have to write that in my journal tomorrow morning, and I somehow was able to just not do it. Like I've been going for a month, and I'm able to continue it. And part of that is like the regular checking in with myself, which happens in morning pages and in meditation. Um, and the more I can then check in, it enables me to remember, without even trying to, what's important to me. What's important to me is first to be kind. And people say that as like um, in a glib way, you know me. Um, like, so to be kind to the people I care about. Uh, is really important to me. And I always did that. But I can be more conscientiously kind if I do morning pages and I meditate. Because then it's not just, oh, I'm a kind person, is how I think of myself. It's, well, was I kind today? And how will I be kind later today and tomorrow? So it's funny, the morning pages are not necessarily... Uh, like a pure diary, but almost like an accountability uh, factor. It's not as right. Well. All it really is is three pages of free writing. But if you do it enough, it's but you just refer to it as accountability in two different well, ways. Because what happens is by what I have found happens for me in the morning pages mm-hmm. is so because it's free writing. So you're just moving your hand across the page for three pages, right? I guess some people could just write, "Oh, um, I woke up. I am breathing. I am still breathing." Because you only have to write, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But after a month of that, you're going to write, I am still breathing. Also, I'm a fat fuck. Why am I a fat fuck? Because eventually you'll start talking to yourself. The key is eventually you'll start talking to yourself and you'll see where you, I found. You see where you let yourself down. You see where you've exceeded your expectations. You'll see what your secret dreams are. That's what happens to me. It reveals to me uh, where I want to go and how I want to get there. Combined with meditation. Meditation for the stillness and to calm the anxiety. The morning pages to tap into the subconscious uh, dreams and things that hold you back. Look, the main point I want I, I try to get across and all this stuff is calculate less. Don't calculate, don't think you can game it. You can't game it. You have to be so much smarter than... What does it mean, calculate less? Calculate less means don't sit down and say, what does the market want in television? Mm, mm. I've never thought about that. Mm. My show, I mean, our show, Billions, is not like any other show. It's not a genre show. It's it's uh, a show that can reference kind of anything. Uh, I don't sit down and think about what the market will sustain or support. I didn't when Dave and I wrote Rounders. I didn't when we wrote Solitary Man. I didn't when we made our 30 for 30 documentary on Jimmy Connors, which is another one of my favorite things that we've done. I find that that stuff is a distraction. You can't game it. You can't guess it because it moves. So there's an important quote in this. Brian has so many interesting things to say about creativity. There's a lot of stuff in this clip. I encourage people to listen to the whole episode, episode 193. If you Google Brian Koppelman Vines, you'll see he did hundreds of Vines about how to write and how to write a screenplay and how to be creative. But the most important thing, and people forget this, 
write every single day. You can just write a paragraph. You can write three pages. Sometimes Brian says he just sits down, he puts the pen down, he writes three pages without thinking, and he writes all nonsense. And then he just throws it out, or he stores it away for 10 years and never looks at it. That's the Julia Cameron technique called morning pages, but he does it every single day. And that's before he starts writing on his screenplays. Now, I've seen Brian in action. This guy, when he's putting together a TV show, I have never seen someone work so hard in my life. It's like they write five books per episode. They work so hard, and they they don't just write it and hand it off. They're in there when the director is shooting. They're making comments. They're encouraging the actors. They're working with all the cinematography, all the sets, all the culture of the production. Brian and David get really involved in the full creativity of their product. But their real main point, Brian's real main point is, write a little bit each day, and that will build into making you a creative powerhouse. So that's episode 193, How to Deliver Every Single Time. When people say to me, what's your favorite, who's been your favorite guest? I have no answer. I literally love these guests. And the next clip you're going to listen to is from one of my favorite writers, Cheryl Strayed. Long before I did a podcast, I was reading her columns on the web. This is like, I forget, 2009, 2010. She had these columns called Dear Sugar. Now, of course, she's written the book Wild. It was made into a movie with Reese Witherspoon. Oprah loved it. But long before that, I was reading these anonymous advice columns, Dear Sugar. These Cheryl Strayed columns were just so wise and so beautiful. And Cheryl Strayed turned out to be Dear Sugar. And they were just so wise, and she collected them. And I used to read little pieces of that book every single day before I would start my writing. It was part of my morning routine. My morning ritual was to read Cheryl Strayed's book, Dear Sugar, every single day before I started writing. So that's the next clip. It's from episode 139. And by the way, Steve, are we going to get Cheryl Strayed on again? When's she coming on? Can I? Can you tell her? And, and, and Jay, keep all this in the episode. Please, Pamela, please don't edit this out at all. Cheryl Strayed is one of my favorite humans on the planet. I really want to talk to her again, just for my own selfish benefit, even if she doesn't want to talk to me. So this question you're asking is essentially, why are you you? How did did you become you? And it's the hardest one for me to answer because, of course, I am just me. But what I can tell you is that I, I I, I very early on knew that I was going to be a writer. I felt called to be a writer when I was a child, when I learned to read, you know, when I was six, I, I remember feeling that, that language made something inside of me that, that nothing else made. And I wanted to be a maker of that in the world. I wanted to pierce people with the kind of truth and beauty that I felt pierced by when I first began reading. And I knew that part of that for me was, you know, the, the work of being a writer is the work of understanding what it means to be human. And anytime you engage with that question, you go to the darkest places and the, and the lightest places. And I could see in my own life, you know, that there were these extreme, I, I have experiences on the extreme end of both, of both, you know, the darkness and the light, the suffering and the joy. And right. that if I was right. going to be, you know, right about that stuff, I was going to need to be willing to go to all of those places. At the moment, I don't give a shit about the joy. <laughs> 
I just want to hear about you want to hear the darkness. <laughs> the darkness. Because I do yeah. and, and then the second question, the follow-up question to that is, do you need darkness necessarily to be an artist or a writer or an innovator? Mm-hmm. I think that you have to have an understanding of suffering. I think suffering is a pretty big deal. And I uh, was introduced to it pretty early. And, you know, your question, do you have to have that to be an artist? I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that we, I'm sure there are, I, I certainly can think of writer friends who have had pretty great lives and, and I think that they're beautiful writers. I do think that, you know, even if you haven't experienced suffering firsthand, you have to understand it. You have to have a compassionate heart and a compassionate sense of uh, your fellow humans if you've not experienced it firsthand. Certainly lots of people who suffer are not kind and compassionate. So I don't think that they always go hand in hand. I really think that there are creative ways to make the worst things that happen to us um, into something positive in our lives. Like, and, and then also the two truths can exist alongside each other. I don't, I'm not glad my mom is dead, but she is dead. And I've, I've used, I mean, that has given me something in my life. Like that I've, I've become a better person because of all the things I've learned from her young death. And those two things don't oppose each other. They can sit right alongside each other. And, and, and so maybe, maybe using that word positive is just sort of overstating it. But, but I do think that you can let the darkest lessons, the darkest, darkest experiences of your life be your greatest teachers. And so you have the power to make something of this that is not only sorrow, that is not only grief, that is not only darkness. And so even though all of those things will always exist, your job is to make something else of it too. Right. And, oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, yeah, and, and and I think that that's true. And of course, that's that's that's, that's a deep stuff, right? I think that can be true in, in many kinds of losses. You know, when people have transitions that have to do with their their you know their work or their romantic life, or you know that you do need to say, okay, I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is learn everything I can possibly learn from that experience and bring it forward creatively, positively into that next thing. And that's how we make the bad things that happen to us good and, 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 and in some ways, um, you know, far better than we imagine they would be in the moment that they happen. And maybe this is a na- naive question, but how can you speed up the process where it becomes a blessing rather than a burden, or at least where you have the choice where it can become a blessing rather than a burden? Well, I think you do powerful things for yourself. I, ch- I decided to hike 1,100 miles by myself. It was a I chose to do that explicitly because I knew that I needed to do something that would put me back in touch with my strengths, that would challenge me. You know, there, we, get, we used to do rites of passage, you know, passages in our cultures, you know, across, across the world, throughout time, during times of life transitions, people have had the opportunity to, to, in a ceremonial way, move from one part of life to another. And I think in my hike, I did that for myself. And all of those rites of passage, they're not like going to a spa in Paris and, you know, getting massages every day. They're, they're always deprivation, a physical challenge, um, often solitude, almost always solitude. So I think doing something that's powerful and strong and hard but life-giving is essential. And I think you need to actually seek those out. Like you were asking me earlier, like first you decide that something has to change. And then you do things that will help you change. You put yourself in situations that will allow you to call upon 
your deepest strengths, your deepest truths. I think she addresses a real important thing in this clip. Do you have to suffer to be an artist? And she says, of course, she's balanced. She says, of course, there are great artists out there who didn't have as much suffering as others. I know many people who have both suffered and been great artists and not suffered and been great artists. Cheryl's been through her own suffering, which was much more deeply personal, and she drew upon that to become a writer. I think one thing we can draw from that is think back to those moments when deep inside you really felt just this sadness or this hole inside yourself or this question like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And just, I don't know, even if you've never written before in your entire life, just sit down and write down what you were feeling that day and see what happens. This is again episode 139. She'll come on again, but also I highly recommend Dear Sugar. The collection of columns is called Tiny Beautiful Things. She also wrote Wild, which became a movie. To be honest, I haven't seen the movie just because I love the book so much. But she's certainly a great person to follow. This next clip, it was so exciting for me to get him, was when the podcast first started. I mean, this is episode six I'm talking about. So this was, I think I talked to him when I was just building the backlog in 2013 before we actually launched the podcast. And at the time, I remember there was a lot of debate, not from me, but from other people who were helping me with the podcast. Like, oh, this is out of your, this is out of your demographic. This guy you're about to talk about, he has nothing to do with business and you want to be a business podcast. I'm like, no, I don't want to be a business podcast. This podcast is about peak performance and how the listener can better their lives. So this next clip, let's listen to it. It's from episode six. So you can see what a wimp I was in asking questions and in interrupting people. But uh, please listen to Wayne Dyer, who's unfortunately has passed away, but was such an inspiration for millions while he was here. With your very first book, you basically uh, bought thousands of copies of your book put them in the back of your car and literally drove around the country finding bookstores to sell your book at and giving talks and so on. This is what I call a choose yourself career. You really chose yourself for success and rejected, you know, kind of the trappings of academia and other careers. You, you invented your own career and it's been very successful. Yes, it has. It was, um, you know, when in 1960, Seventy-six, when I left the St. John's University, and um, I was um, I was a professor who was was about to get full tenure at the university, which means that I would have uh, guaranteed employment for, for the rest of my life. All right, and you know what, uh, James? That that concept scared the hell out of me. Just the idea that I was going to be right here in this classroom, in this office, doing this for the rest of my life, and I was thirty-six years old. And I was on the Long Island Expressway. I pulled over onto the side, uh, and the cars were zooming by me. And I had this, uh, what, what my teacher Abraham Maslow called a peak experience. It was like, uh, it was a quantum moment in my life. It was like an energy that just said, you, um, you know, you don't want to be in tenure. You don't want to be, have a guaranteed, uh, employment. You don't want to be doing something that you've already done over and over and over again. All of this was like just overwhelming. And I drove into the university. I walked up to the second floor of Merrillac Hall at St. John's University, walked into the dean's office, Dean Sarah Fassenmeyer. And I said, I can't, uh, I can't accept the tenured position. And, uh, this will be my last semester. I'm going to, I'm going to go out uh, across the country and, 
and uh, fulfill a dharma that I know is mine. You can come up with a hundred million excuses to keep yourself from uh, fulfilling a destiny that you signed up for before you even came here. You know, you talk about this a lot in your book, uh, Excuses Be Gone. And, uh, and you see this now in this economy. People are very eager to blame the economy, blame the stock market, blame, uh, the government or whoever. But what would you say is kind of the, 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 a, a good way to overcome these excuses to, so you can move forward, so you can find success or satisfaction with your life? What we have to learn how to do is to surrender to the highest place within ourselves that's saying, this is what you showed up here for. This is uh, this is your excitement. This is what makes you feel good. This is what what lights your fire uh, inside of you. And and pay attention to it. And when you're aligned with it, like whatever it is that makes you feel good, it makes you really feel good inside, and doesn't stop anybody else from feeling good. The reason that it, it excites you so much is because you're really now finally you're aligned with who you are. Who you are came here to be this. And, and, and if your life is one in which you're just getting up and, and going through the motions and being a commuter and going back and forth doing the thing, you know, I think most people, they've just, they've accepted and sort of almost like a destiny that says that you're only ordinary. And would, I would you say that, that it's, uh, that it's almost like they have to practice? Like if you're, if you, if you're, let's say 40 years old or 50 years old and you have the mindset your entire life that, oh, I'm ordinary and I can't really break free, you have to sort of practice some internal muscle or some spiritual muscle or whatever it is to, to kind of get, break out of that box. Absolutely. So when, you know, you l- listen to the episode, he's so inspirational. In fact, after that episode, I was still doing things not in person. We did that one over Skype. And I remember um, the audio engineer, after Wayne logged off of Skype, the audio engineer said to me, wow, I'm going to quit my job. And he did. So he was so inspired by what Wayne had said. So I encourage people to listen to episode six. But what really inspires me about Wayne is he could have had the easy life. He had tenure at St. John's University and tenure means you could just kind of hang out at that job forever and teach students and even write books. But he wrote a book. He really believed in it. You know, it's called Your Erroneous Zones, which is, a, I think, a horrible title. He's since written books with much better titles. He's written, written 40 books, including 21 New York Times bestsellers. But he took that first book. He loaded up his trunk with as many copies as possible. He quit his easy tenure job, and he simply drove across the country bookstore by bookstore, selling books. That's what makes someone from Professor Wayne Dyer that nobody ever heard of to the Wayne Dyer that became loved by many. So many people were so sad after he he passed away. Me, one of them, and, and so many of my friends who knew him. And he just had a real big effect on a lot of people's lives. And given that was only episode six, I was really happy to have him on. And, you know, his last podcast he ever did before... He unfortunately passed away. I wish I wish he could come on again, but but he's not with us now. The next clip, you gotta listen to this. Sheila Nevins, she's the head of all HBO documentary films, president of HBO documentary films. She won 26 Academy Awards, which is amazing. That I felt that there could be performance in every man, that every man could perform his life or his situation or his trauma or his successes, or his failure. We're troubled people in a troubled universe. 
We have to find our way. And the how you find your way through the tragedy. It's all tragedy, wouldn't you say? It's more tragedy than comedy. Of course, yes. You knew what would be both important and entertaining to the viewer. And I think that's why you have 26 Academy Awards for producing well, all these amazing... But not only good 1,700 documentaries. 1,700 documentaries, yeah. The autopsy shows were great. <gasps> it's really hard to have a vision that nobody ever had before that then becomes successful. But that's the only fun for me. To me, autopsy was the most, the darkest. Because to see that your, your body was chopped meat, uh, I mean, actually, for two weeks, I was a vegetarian, but I got over it very quickly. I went to my first autopsy, and for two weeks, I couldn't get rid of the smell of formaldehyde. Uh. I realized we were made of chopped meat. I realized that what was human was um, consciousness only, that the rest of us was just matter. That changed my life. That autopsy yeah. changed my life. Yeah, it changed my life. I just saw the human body for what it was. It was this miracle of plumbing. It was incredible. It had pipes, and it had organs, and it was like, I mean, I hate to say this, it was a little bit like my toilet or my stove. It was just incredible. So the only thing left was ideas. The only thing that could possibly lift you from material things was imagination. Well, let's find out. Why aren't you running HBO? I'll tell you why I'm not running it. Can you say vagina here? Yes. That's why. I can tell you, having worked personally for Sheila Evans 20 years ago, and we talk about this in detail on the podcast, she remembered every detail of me working for her on our own project that we worked on together called 3 a.m., what people were up to at 3 in the morning in New York. She remembered every detail of it. She's 79 years old. Memory, I think she probably remembers childbirth. Her memory is so good. But I can tell you, she is involved in every step of the creative process, and she's a genius at that process. She is the master of creativity. Such a valuable episode to listen to, and it was so great for me to kind of come full circle with this woman that I worked for, both the highs and the lows. It wasn't always easy. She's very eccentric, and I'm sure she would not mind me saying that, a little eccentric and, and a little crazy, and that's probably the source of a lot of her creativity. But that's from episode 273, and she's been a valuable mentor to mine not only 20 years ago, but now in that recent podcast episode. I always say, this next clip, blah, 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 is one of my best friends, blah, blah, blah. But this guy, I just love having him on my podcast, Scott Adams. He's the creator of Dilbert. So many interesting things to say. I don't know where to start. Let's listen to the clip first. It's from episode 276. He's been on three really times. Why you're here and what's created some infamy for you. I would say more infamy than fame in a weird way. But you predicted Trump's election almost the day he announced his candidacy. So he had 18 opponents for the Republican nomination. And then he still had the general election to go. And at that point already, you were saying Trump is a master persuader. You had taken... Uh, hypnotism lessons and considered yourself a very good persuader. And you said, this is the only candidate I see using master persuasion skills. And so you, on that basis alone, you predicted Trump's eventual win. I predicted that he was, as I like to say, bringing a flamethrower to a stick fight and the, and the sticks didn't see it coming because he had, he had a set of tools that were 
uh, insanely impressive, but also a little bit invisible, which was the fun part. Because if you look at his talent stack, as I, as I like to say, the number of things he can do really well, but not the best in the world, not even better than people who he's running against. You know, you could say, well, you know, he's, he's not the smartest person in the race, but he's really smart. Right. You know, he's, he's not the best public speaker, but he's really good. He's not the funniest person you've ever met, but he's really funny. You know, he's not the best, maybe he might not be the best negotiator you've ever met, but he certainly knows how to negotiate. And you can just keep going down the line, and he's sort of a A minus, B plus, or, or A, and this whole range of things from reality TV to business. Uh, and he, he brought the whole package, and I didn't see anybody who, who I thought could, could compete with him. Well, it, there's two directions I want to go on the talent stack issue. And we talked about talent stack on our last podcast, but I just want to summarize it. And I want to summarize it in the form of you with Dilbert. Just basically, it's a combination of skills where you might not be the best, but you're pretty good. But the combination of them makes you the best in the world at the intersection, right. roughly. Right. So in the case of cartooning, um, nobody would call me a great artist, but I can draw a picture that you, you know what it's supposed to be. Um, I'm not certainly not the best writer. I'm not the funniest person even in this room. <laughs> uh, I doubt that. I don't know about that. Uh, but there are very few people who have all those three skills, plus have some business experience, um, can write short sentences that people you know want to read. So there's probably there might be about a dozen different micro skills that that come together to make Dilbert work. And if you took one or two of them out, it, it would all fall apart. I love the phrase micro skills because I think people look at peak performers from afar and say, oh, Tiger Woods is a great golfer or Michael Jordan was a great basketball player or Scott Adams is a great cartoonist. But really, there's no meta skill called basketball. It's a thousand or not a thousand, but it's like 20 to 100 micro skills that are kind of exclusive of each other. You know, like Michael Jordan had to be good at shooting hoops from a certain distance. And and he also had to be good at running around the basketball court and avoiding other people. It's two completely different skills from each other. But he had to be the best in the world at both to be the best in the world at the intersection. Yeah, and so if you were born with the talent to be the best piano player or the best golfer in the world, you probably get noticed really early. You know, you're five years old and somebody's already saying, did you see that? Did you see what that five-year-old just did? Give him a golf club right now. Uh, but if you're not one of those, if you're not obviously just a prodigy, the other way for normal people who, who just are hardworking and pretty good and you know willing to put in the effort is to build a stack of talents that other people don't have and one that has a commercial value. Scott created Dilbert. He's the author of How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. Good book. Came out around the same time as Choose Yourself. But I really love his last book, Win Bigly, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter. And he, 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 he's not for or against Trump, but it's worth analyzing how does someone with no experience at all become president of the United States? And even more interesting to me, when Trump was running for the Republican nomination and there were still 18 other Republican candidates how did Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, predict that Trump would win? One thing he said, which is really interesting, which is that Trump always focused on not what he said, like, 
like he hasn't really done anything he said he would do. So I asked Scott about this, and Scott said, notice the direction was correct. So he made big, huge, even outrageous claims in that direction. What did that do for him? It kind of really motivated, whatever you think about them, good or bad, it motivated the voters. Now, did Trump execute on any of those things? I kind of don't really follow, but I would say no. Uh, he, he didn't execute on a lot of these things, but he always moved in the direction. Like maybe he would cut the claim in half later, or maybe even a fourth. But pick a direction, make the claim, unify the forces around you, and then you get the power to execute in the direction you want to execute. So Scott's been on three times. The clip you just heard was from episode 276. I'm sure Scott will be on again. He's a great guy. This next guest, I was so happy to have him on. It's the one guest I can say we're not really good friends, but I was happy to talk to him. When I was younger, in 1995, my favorite, I've always been interested in hip hop and rap music. My first company made the websites for all the rap record labels like Bad Boy Records, Loud Records, Jive Records, Interscope so into it but my favorite rap song at the time 1995 was gangster's paradise by coolio lo and behold episode 42 coolio came on the podcast by the way coolio has an album coming out next month all right so episode 42 here's a clip right there what you just did i said i can write something like that and like i can write something like that in 10 15 minutes he said do it then and i did and that was it. That was it. From that day on, um, probably for the next ten years of my life, I wrote. I wrote every day. So, so, I, I, so, Coolio, this is really important. So, for ten years, you wrote every single day. Would you write first thing in the morning? Would you write in the afternoon? What would you write? Just lyrics? Yeah, whatever. And did you try? Were you rapping them also, or did you focus more on the writing? And I was, I was them too. And, Practicing, you know, like I said, we didn't have any equipment to, to make demos and nothing, so it was just and, practice. I was, I was holding my skill. And, and I mean, the lyrics, every step of the way, are, they're, they're really inspirational. They're not about uh, a gangster's paradise. They're about getting out of what but uh, what I'm getting at is you wrote for nine years, you practiced for nine years, and you had that one first single that sold whatever, 100 copies, played in the radio, it was on the local scene in L.A., uh, yeah. and then it took you another four years after that, you joined uh, WC in the Mad Circle, and so you were really working at it. Like, there was no real, you didn't have any, you weren't making money at this time doing it, but you did it for the love of it. Absolutely, I did it because I, I it, it made me feel good. I enjoyed it. It was uh, kept me out of trouble too. I mean, it was it was kind of like, you know, you know what's weird about gangster? I said I, I used to say that I wrote gangster, but in reality, gangster paradise wrote me. You know why? Why do you think so many people think that they don't need to put in like nine years of work in order to be great at something? Um, I think because people are lazy. They want, especially the kids today, man, they want everything the easy way. And, I, you know, I was, I, like I said, I, I didn't even, 
consider making it in rap. I mean, I, you know, people weren't getting record deals back then and stuff like that. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know if that was going to happen or not. I was just doing it because I loved it, and I, I actually wanted to be a psychologist. Why'd you want to be a psychologist? Because I was good at reading people. So you had this, so probably this kind of understanding of people combined with writing every day allowed you to kind of make, essentially make this poetry that turned into, you know, Fantastic Voyage, Gangster's Paris, uh, Gangster's Paradise, and all the, all the songs that became huge hits. Yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was my vocabulary, my comprehension, it was all of it, man. And, and I'm, I'm, any kids out there listening or anybody out there listening that has any aspirations to be uh, an MC, you, you better get your words up, get your vocabulary up. That's the only way I think you really be good. I have to tell you, uh, I, I don't know if this is a good or bad thing to tell you, but Gangster's Paradise is my all-time favorite song ever. It's a completely different song than any other song out there. And I really yeah. appreciate you coming on my show. Hey, man, you know what? Because you, you, you know, you, you, you started off kind of, you know, I thought, I thought you was going to be obnoxious and whatnot, but you actually, um, you know, you started off kind of goofy. But okay. then you know, actually, you're 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 quite you're quite intelligent, man. Your 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 line of questioning and the way you ask questions is very uh, disarming. You made me talk about stuff that I don't normally uh, you know talk about. I, I let you get in my head, man, without without really knowing it. So so kudos, kudos All to right, you, man. Thank you. This is what I love about Coolio. He started writing rap songs when he was a kid. He wrote. Every single day for 10 years, for, for longer than that. I think he wrote for 15 or 16 years before he wrote his first major Billboard hit. And that's not like he came from a privileged background where he could sit around writing rap lyrics. He had problems all around him. And he wrote every single day. And if you listen to how... Go back to that episode, episode 42. Listen to how he describes... Gangster's Paradise takes elements from this, he takes elements from this. He he understands the history of everything he's doing and he wanted to do something new. And that's what he did with Gangster's Paradise. So he really kind of evolves the art form and it also shows the persistence pays off. Now, you can say there's many people who were persistent and never paid off, but look, Kulu had no advantages. All he did was persist and practice and try and work at it, and be convinced that if he does this, it reminds me of something. When you first start, you're never as good as the people you love and respect and admire. But there's something in the head that protects you from letting you cave in because of that, and it pushes you forward. And, and that's, Coolio is just a great example of that. Next clip. It's probably my worst podcast ever. Biz Marquis. He, um... He hung up on me. Episode 35. Here's the what clip. What happened in the beginning? How did it all start out? What got you interested in what you did? Okay. Uh, in 1977 or 78, I heard a tape from the L Brothers from my man Derek Mangaroo. And ever, ever since I heard it was Grand Wizard Theater and the L Brothers, and that's what got me hooked on hip-hop. And... The reason that I tried so hard to get into hip-hop is because um, I always used to try to get into a group and they would never let me in. Uh, what would they say? I mean, obviously you had talent. What would they say? 
I mean, at the beginning days, I guess I wasn't as good as everybody, you know. I had to work to get good. When you were working to get good, how many hours a day were you practicing? Were you going to high school at the time, or what was going on? Well, I was in junior high, and then I went to high school, and then I used to practice at least about 16 hours to 10 hours a day because I was, I was doing a beatbox. So okay, stop. I used to try to make- Six to 10 hours a day of practice. So many people say like, oh, I have a full-time job, but I have an idea. How could I raise venture capital so I can leave my job? And look, I appreciate that. They probably have an idea that they're passionate about, but this is six to 10 hours a day of practice. Okay, so let's let's get going. So what's like the funnest thing you've done in the past? You've done everything, so I don't even know where to begin. What's the what's I can't what's the even begin at so many things that was fun. I can't even tell you. Like what are uh, some of the things that I haven't great. even mentioned? Celebrity uh, Fit Club, Men in Black, the you, you know, Nick Jr., just a friend. You've done everything. I I want your career. Uh, you can have it, take it. <laughs> no, I gotta work too hard. Six to ten hours, that's too much work. Yeah. When did you start seeing like the results of working that hard? Like how many hours do you think you had put in all together before you would say you were a good rapper? I can't tell you. I just know that I was rocking parties and getting paid for it. Once I started getting money for it, then I knew that it was good. And when did that happen? Um, I started getting money in 83, 82. And was it like enough money to live on? Like were you were you really you know, able to live large nah, 80, then, or, or nah, were you getting by? No, nah, eighty six is when it started. When I got money that I had to live on. Okay, stop, stop there. And so he started practicing six to ten hours a day in nineteen seventy seven, and it wasn't until nineteen eighty six that he can make a living. Nine years. Nine years of six to ten hours a day of practice, and I'm, 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 I believe him that he was doing that every day because he loved it. He clearly wasn't doing anything else. So, uh, it's it's hard work, no matter what you do, man. It's like an overnight success, which I consider just a friend. Still, an overnight success takes a long, long time and a lot of practice. So okay, let's. Uh, it was that was just. I thought that was the most interesting part of the interview with Bismarcky. I mean, there's some other stuff, but the fact that he worked so hard and for so long doing what he loved. But I always think love plus persistence equals abundance, and it worked out for him. But then he talks about the abundance part next. How did you? Um, how did you hold on to it? Like I know for myself, when I first made money, I basically spent it all and went broke. I had to make money several times before I stopped going broke. How did you learn to kind of hold on to your money? One of my habits is like buying stuff off eBay or buying records, though. That ain't really a crazy expensive habit if you bought it, you know what I mean? Right, so you didn't like go out and buy like a helicopter or a huge mansion or anything like that? I'm a car freak, but you know, at the time I was making so much money, it didn't make, it didn't even make no sense. You know what I mean? So it didn't, it didn't really, it didn't really hurt my stuff. Like, what do you mean so much money? Are we talking like $50 million or $5 million? Like, what was, what was a lot of money, um, back then on a, on a good album? I can't tell you how much, but I just know I made a lot of money. So, so in, in Just a Friend, there's this one scene, brilliant scene. You're playing the piano, you're dressed like Mozart, and you're singing the old Freddie Scott song a little bit out of tune. What were you thinking of creatively? Like, I know you're just having fun, but what was what were some of the ideas going through your head? 
I just wanted to be an old school type of Mozart, George Washington is singing the record. I wanted it to be just something that'll be so different that people were able to jump out the screen. And even the even the out of tune part, like you sing out of tune, strangely sounded in tune on the song because because the because rap was playing with that whole idea of of distorting music. And I I really like the out of tune choice. But what were you thinking? I just wanted to I asked people to sing it for me, and they wouldn't sing it, so I had to sing it myself. I see. And you weren't, were you feeling like you weren't much of a singer? You were more of a rapper? Nope. I felt like I've sung it right. Okay, good. So, so, um, I want to, again, thank you so much for coming so on awkward. my podcast. <laughs> uh, you've really taken a career that started out in one direction rap and it, it, it's almost like shattered into 20 other careers. You've really been really great at reinventing yourself. What, what advice would you give someone who wants to switch from one career to another career, someone who wants to reinvent themselves? You got to master one at a time. And how do you master you do, If you do multiple careers, you got to master one at a time. You can't do all of them at the same time. Because if you don't master one, you got to master one, then go to the next master. So even if you have to go back to that career, you already know what you're doing. And how do you master something? I thought that, I thought that was great I advice. Can't. I mean, I can't explain. I, agree. I just know how to do it myself. So this clip was mind-blowing to me because it's not just about Biz Marquee. It's about podcasting in general. A podcast doesn't have to be an interview. In fact, this interview with Biz Marquee wasn't very good. It wasn't very enlightening to me in, in many respects. But what we were able to do was I used this failure as a podcaster to learn. And so we did a podcast about that. It was like a meta podcast. We played over the interview. We moved back and forward in time in the interview with the help of the the audio engineer. And we analyzed every step of the way what I could have done better. And I did become better as a result, I hope. That was episode 35, worth listening to. This next clip is with a really just super great guy, an entrepreneur. But I I don't like calling him an entrepreneur. I really feel like he's almost like, and this is what the title of this episode is, episode 159. He's the Zen master of entrepreneurship. He wrote a book called Anything You Want. Beautiful book, short book. Please read it and and then listen to my questions about it on episode 159. He's so just wise. So anyway, he started a company, CD Baby, sold it 10 years later for $20 million. Very good guy. Favors for people, it implies that people are asking you to do those favors. And to me, the key is the asking. So, um, bluntly put, I kind of think that you shouldn't start a business unless people are asking you to. You do the things that people are asking you to help them with. Those are the things you do. And, um, and you know, other than that, I guess I'm I'm a reluctant businessman. I don't try to make businesses. I just kind of answer the calls for help when they come in. It's almost like you participated in what I'll call the favor economy. So it seems like a lot of your ideas, ranging from CD Baby to even what you're doing now with Now, 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 is you you start off with, I'm going to do a favor for somebody, and then (laughs) 
if if people respond to that favor and want more, then suddenly you say, ah, I can scale this into a business or a platform or something that I want to spend more time on because you personally like doing favors for people. So you created a a buy now button for yourself, then you did it for your CDs, then you did it for a friend, then more people started con- contacting you and you realize, ah, I have a business. So this idea of of verifying or validating that a business idea is good seems to be the method seems to be do a favor for someone see if or do it for yourself first so you learn how to do it do it as a favor for someone else see if more people ask and voila you have a business that cost you no money to create is this yeah. does that seem kind of accurate yeah that's a good description i love it i got a bunch of people contacting me after that asking my advice on things so for the last couple months, I've been giving a lot of advice. It's interesting, though, you bring that up. I know you answered 5,000 emails in a month. Like, why did you, did you feel obligated to, to answer everybody? Was it stressful to do it? No. I mean, well, it was, it was a lot of work, but I wasn't complaining. It was fascinating. Uh, it's every writer's dream, right, to have your finger on the pulse of what people want to know, you know? So it was like, Here's 5,000. Actually, in the end, it was, I think I got over 6,500 emails last time I counted from just from that show. And what was the pulse? Like, what do you think? Because uh, I find in those situations, there is a common question. And what was the theme? What is the zeitgeist right now from what, from what you saw? Oh, boy. Um, I don't know if I can narrow it down to just one. The, the first thing that comes to mind is this idea of like, I want to quit my job and follow my dream, or I have this dream that I'm not following. Also, this, I don't know what my passion is. That's a huge one. Like, I haven't found my passion yet. I don't know what is my purpose, what is my calling. I don't know what my passion is. And I think that's a dangerous one because I believe that we've built up that word passion to be so deep. I kind of think like um, Romeo, Romeo and Juliet, that sometimes those big, giant love stories can be really dangerous because they make you think like, okay, kids, this is what love looks like. Do you want to know what love is? Love is, you know, drinking potion and killing yourself and jumping off of balconies and stabbing others and all in the name of love. If it's nothing, if it's less than that, that's not really love because that's what love really looks like. You know, And so passion, I think, is this word that gets... Uh, used like Romeo and Juliet, like, I had a passion, man. I am passionate about my calling. I am passionate about, you know, malaria in Africa. This is a passion. I'm following my passion. And then, you know, (laughs) some guy in Ohio is just sitting there playing his video games like, I I don't really have a passion. But instead, if you just follow the little things that interest you, Like you just notice on a day-to-day basis what you're drawn towards more. Then you just keep doing that more and more and you find that you get kind of driven by it eventually, that these things grow slowly, kind of like good relationships uh, often grow slowly. You know, it doesn't have to be this boom, love at first sight, uh, that it can be this thing that just grows and grows. But if you were thinking like, that doesn't look like passion. You know, that doesn't look like love. I didn't freak the fuck out the second we met, so it must not be love. It must not be passion. Then uh, you overlook some of the best things in life. And it sounds like your career, if you look at it and slice and dice it in, in various ways, is very much like that in the, in the sense that you had a theme rather than a passion. So your theme was 
music. You performed, you're an employee at Warner Chapel, and then finally, after a lot of trial and error, you learned programming, you started selling music online, and that turned into CD Baby, which finally, in this favor economy way, uh, worked out. So uh, it, it seems like still having a theme, like you say, noticing different things, but then what can you do within that larger core theme or value or whatever, that's kind of a, a what, what people should be asking, perhaps. Right. So, right. The, the I love that you brought that up. The theme, can you can have a core theme in your life that often you don't notice until many years have passed and you notice that a lot of the things that have interested you the most have something in common. So check this out. I'm kind of changing the subject, but kind of... Go for it. Pivoting on that point. <laughs> that uh, I was working with this consultant coach dude once that he wanted to get to what was my core value. And he said, well, uh, I, I said something about programming. He said, well, why do you like that? And I, I said, well, because of this. And he said, well, why is that important to you? I said, um, because of this. And he said, okay, well, then why is that important to you? He kept drilling down. It was kind of like the five whys, but uh, this version that was trying to get to, like, why is that important to you? What's the core value of that? Why does that matter to you? And so he got down to what was supposed to be the final value. But to me, it came down to two, that my two most important values were learning and creating and he said, okay, now of those two, which one is more important to you ultimately? I was like, well, no, you can't reduce it any further. He's like, no, you have to figure out which one of those two is more important to you. Is it ultimately about the learning or ultimately about the creating? And I thought about it for a bit and I said, you know what? This is a fault of the English language. Because, you know, sometimes there, in other languages, there are um, words that take a whole paragraph to say in English, but you know, in in Portuguese they may have a word. Uh, is it surare or something like that? That that takes a whole paragraph to explain it in English, but in Portuguese that's just one word. And I thought you can't say that I haven't figured out my core value because I I have my core value is learning for the sake of creating, for the sake of learning, for the sake of creating. It's just that we don't have a single word for that. But to me, that is one core theme. Is that my whole life, I love learning things for the sake of creating things, which is for the sake of learning things, which then is for the sake of creating things. Like that loop is a thing to me that should be one word. That's my theme. I'll tell one story about Derek. I mean, I was, I was so happy he came on because I loved his book. I mean, I really felt it improved my life. And I wanted a podcast with him to improve people's lives. But just one little note. At the time, I had never, from episodes 1 through 158, I had never had a single advertisement on my podcast. So Derek, who never goes on podcasts, he comes on my podcast and says, I told my assistant I'm not saying yes to any podcast unless it's James Altucher's. And then he tells me, one of the things I like most about your podcast, not only is you and your interviews and your guests and your own personal story, he says, I like the fact that you don't have any advertising. And I really didn't have the heart to tell him at that moment that episode 159, the episode he was going to be in, was going to be the very first episode I had with advertising. Now, why do advertisers on a podcast? Well, I wanted to hire producers. I wanted to hire audio engineers. I wanted to hire researchers. I really wanted to make the podcast even more professional than it already was. And I also feel like ads kind of in some way legitimize 
the podcast. Of course, I was choosing myself. We were, we were 159 episodes in, and it's not as if I let the lack of advertising stop me. But I was glad people wanted to advertise on it. I was, I was proud of that. But I like this thing Derek says in the beginning of the clip. Don't start a business unless people are asking you to. And if you listen to that episode, he starts his business in a very organic way. It's like he created his CD, and then he sort of self-published the CD. And then other friends of his who were musicians but didn't necessarily have the technical sense said, hey, can you do this for me too? Can you do this for me too? Can you do this for me too? And you'll, you'll find this is common among a lot of the people who I've interviewed. It's how my first business started. It was building websites. Oh, can you do this, a website for me just like you did it for them? Wait until people, not wait, but like find out what people are going to ask you to do. That's a great way of validating a business. That was episode 159, Derek Sivers. Final clip in this 300th episode retrospective. It's one of the smartest people I know. Happy to call him a friend. Nassim Taleb, he wrote The Black Swan. He wrote Fooled by Randomness. He wrote one of the smartest books I've ever read, Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain from disorder. Anti-fragile are things that actually get stronger when things go bad. He was talking mostly about economics with that book, but I wanted to look at it from a personal perspective, personal anti-fragility. So that was episode 45. But it was only the second episode I think I had done at that time with someone in person. Nassim was gracious enough to come in and I've been a fan of his for almost 20 years. So here's the yeah. clip. One day it hit me looking at a coffee cup, all right, that I could define fragility. While looking at a coffee While cup. While looking at a coffee cup. As I said, was it one of the Greek coffee it's cups? A, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, it was a coffee cup on a table, and, and I, I was looking at it. I looked at it. I said, oh, boy. I can do, and and anti-fragile started that day, hmm. all right? I started writing it. I started doing the math behind it. I said, for 20-some years, I've been an option trader. And we have a definition of things that don't like volatility. You see, the things, you know, think of a coffee cup. If there's any random event in a room, not one of them will help it. It'll be, or it'll be either neutral or negative. So we have an asymmetry. Right. There are things suffer from, they have more downside than upside. I looked at it, I said, oh, we have a definition of fragility. Hmm. Can I generalize to everything fragile being negatively affected by volatility? Ah, yes, I can. Aha. Uh-huh. So I just said, okay, everything that doesn't like volatility is fragile, and everything fragile likes volatility. So, and everything flew from there. So you can construct the you can you can construct a a, a sort of uh, a prism, all right, to view the world in three categories. The the fragile, like like short option, if there's volatility, it, 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 it's exposed to it. It can blow up, it can suffer, whatever, the various degrees. So let's give some examples yeah. of fragile. So like you give one example, which I thought was great, uh, an, an old woman who likes everything to be 70 degrees, well, okay, an average of 70 degrees yeah. is bad because if it's 140 degrees, she's dead, and if it's zero degrees, exactly, she's dead. Exactly, exactly. To explain this, we need one point to explain it which is uh, uh, to explain the link between a coffee cup and the old lady, uh, or, 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 sorry, an elderly person um, <laughs> who doesn't like thermal variability, which is as follows, is that the whatever you can show mathematically, and, and, and this, I think, is important, okay, because it generalizes to so many things, 
what is important is that what doesn't like volatility doesn't like variation, doesn't like stressors, doesn't like time. Aha, you remember we started the conversation talking about time. Mm. What doesn't like volatility doesn't like time. Why? Time is volatility. It's more events happening. Right. You see? And uh, does like entropy. And you can you can very easily make a table of what other things that what does like volatility doesn't like and put them all in the same group, the fragile. So the fragile doesn't group. like time. Sorry? It's a huge group. It's, it's a much a bigger group, group yes. than the anti-fragile. But, but whatever doesn't like one will, won't like the others. This is what the interesting thing. What doesn't like what doesn't like time doesn't like unpredictability and doesn't like stressors and doesn't like randomness and doesn't like uncertainty and doesn't like all these things. I so, feel like you're describing all my uh, emotional relationships with people. <laughs> okay, no, but up to a point, of course. Uh, something anti-fragile is effectively something that, that gains from uh, stressors to the system. Most people think that people get trauma from wars, from stuff like that. I was a victim of war. It was horrible. But, uh, but I think that I benefit from it. I personally grew from it. And, and let me tell you that a lot of people don't understand that uh, post-traumatic growth, hmm. that growth comes from trauma. People talk about post-traumatic uh, disorder. The real thing is post-traumatic uh, growth. To really be anti-fragile, you have to be in a business of trial and error hmm. where all your side effects are going to be beneficial. Gosh, what a great clip. And as... um. Someone said afterwards in the comments, you know, he has that that deep, beautiful Middle Eastern accent. And he's, again, such a smart guy. He's got another book coming out. It's called Skin in the Game. Once again, I'll ask Steve, my producer, is he already booked? Yep, he's from the Seams Labs, going to come back on the podcast. I can't wait. He's such a, a good guy and, and so interesting, interesting, interesting to talk to. So we don't talk about this in the clip, but I really wanted to ask him, Again, I mentioned earlier, I haven't been to a doctor since I was 18. Sure, I've gotten colds. But you know, cold, you don't have to go to a doctor. You just get over it in a few days. But I'm really nervous. Like, I'm going to be 50 in a month. Anyone who wants to know, I'll be 50 on January 22nd. For some reason, Wikipedia says January 23rd. But um, I don't feel like 50. And I, I, I didn't mind turning 30. I didn't mind turning 40 kind of mind turning 50 and I don't know why but I told Nassim and it wasn't in this clip but it was in the episode episode 45 title of that episode is why you should embrace uncertainty with Nassim Taleb I said to Nassim I'm afraid I don't have personal anti-fragility like if something bad happens to me I'm going to be so I mean bad things have happened to me financially and emotionally but not physically I said to him I'm so afraid if something bad, even when I have a cold, I feel like, oh God, this is it. I'm about to die. What if something really serious happens to me? And he had he had lots of great advice. You know, he described what he did. I'll just give you one example. He doesn't like to walk on the sidewalk. He likes to walk on grass and up and down hills and likes to put essentially obstacles in his way because that's how humans did it for two million years. And now we're blessed with sidewalks, but it doesn't really teach us to even on very small microscopic levels like that, it doesn't really teach us how to deal with the roughness of life. So he said, find more opportunities to physically challenge yourself so that when something physically challenging really happens, you're ready for it. And I think that could be said for anything, business, relationships, writing, creativity. Meanwhile, 
You've just listened to 30 clips. You've listened to my comments on those clips. I love doing this podcast. I love being able to call all of my heroes, all my heroes that have been heroes for, for not just today or yesterday or not just celebrities or just people I think you would be interested in. These are people who have been heroes of mine in some cases for decades, for three, four, and yes, maybe now five decades. Some of these people have been my heroes. And I feel so blessed that I've been able to talk to them and learn from them. People sometimes say, why do you interrupt your guests? And you know, I'll answer that, which is that when else am I going to ask the questions I want to ask? In some cases, I've had 30 years of questions to ask them. Okay, they have an answer. I don't quite understand the answer. I'm going to ask a question. Explain that to me a little bit more. Uh, Coolio is a great example. Coolio said, you know, and then I had some problems. I said to him, and again, when else would I ask him this? Well, Coolio, what kind of problems did you have? He said, oh, you know, I had some coke problems, cocaine problems, and then I got over them. And then he he starts talking and going on. Again, when else am I going to ask him the follow-up question? How do you get over a cocaine problem? And so then he breaks it down and goes over it. And I learned, and hopefully the listeners learned. And then we moved on. It's not like, this is not like a TV show no offense to Steve Cohen, it's not like this is a stupid morning talk show. Um, the guest is not on for three minutes, just blurbing his latest movie or whatever. We get to have meaningful conversations on these podcasts, and there's no time limit. You know, we've had close to 30 million downloads. I've had people stop me in the street and say, thank you for your podcast. And I, I feel so grateful for that. It's like, it almost makes me cry. The other day, someone saw that I was on the phone in the street And then he went into a card store. He bought a card. He filled up the card with a note about how much the podcast has meant to him. And I'm so important. He hands me the note and walks away. And I was so grateful for that, that that not to get the acknowledgement, but to know that people are getting helped because we're really dealing with deep issues, not just like how to improve your sales or whatever. We're really touching on the human experience and how people become better performers at what they do, how they reach their potential, how they achieve peak performance. Not just the guests, but really this is for the listeners. And it's for me. I want to achieve better potential, my potential in life. So anyway, thank you for listening to this 300th episode. Thank you for, whether you've been with me for all 300 episodes or you've just started listening, I hope you listen to the next 300 because I, I keep trying to improve. I work so hard at this. This is the thing I work the hardest at in my life. And it's been such a blessing and pleasure to do this. Nobody really has to do a podcast. It takes a lot of time. I prepare, like with Nassim Taleb as an example, some of his books are are hard. He he's told me in the in the episode, he specifically wrote anti-fragile so that it would be so complicated and dense it would be hard to read. And I read every page and wrote down notes on every page with all of his books. I listened to other interviews he did, but he'd never been on another podcast and he hasn't been on one since. But he's coming back on this one. I put in the work and I do that for you, but also for me. I want to learn and I want to learn from these people who I admire and respect so much. I wouldn't bring them on if I first didn't really have just the fondest thoughts and feelings towards them. So look, the next 300 episodes I'm super excited about. We have an amazing team in place. 
David Newman, he was with me in the very beginning, 2013, was such a believer in the concept of, hey, let's do a podcast. This was before everybody and their brother was doing a podcast. David Newman and I, often it was just the two of us with everybody against us figuring out, look, let's just do one more and and get away with it. At first we were just getting away with it and it was like our secret plan. And uh, David really was always encouraging. Pamela Rothenberg has been with me on this podcast almost since the beginning. Steve Cohen has joined the team, booking so many great guests and really such an amazing job as producer. Jay Yao is the audio engineer right in there. Uh, Nathan Rossborough. Nathan's been with me not only on this podcast, he's done so many of my audiobooks, the audio engineering on my audiobooks. He was with me on um, the podcast I did with Stephen Dubmer, Tell Me Something I Don't Know. He's such a hardworking guy. I don't mean to make this like a credit screen, but it's just important to acknowledge that it's not just one person. I didn't even name so many people who have done research for me. Ramam Matra does research. Ashley Morris does research. Who else has done research? I've done, so many people have done research for me. It's been great. I've had a lot of people just for free randomly send in notes when I say, oh, I'm going to have on this guest, and people have sent in such great notes, and it always just supplements my own research. It never replaces it. People sometimes ask me what my favorite podcast is out there. I'm so busy doing my own podcast and research and preparation. The preparation is difficult, so I don't really have too many favorite podcasts. I like the Model Health podcast with Sean Stevenson. I like Joe Rogan's podcast. I think he's mastered the art of turning an interview into a conversation. And he's such a smart guy. He's also a comic. I like many comedian podcasts, too many to really name, but if, if it's out there, I probably have listened to it and liked it. Like a lot of the podcasts I've been on, Lewis House, Tim Ferriss. I don't know, I'm, I'm sure there are many that I'm forgetting, um, but there's a lot of good podcasts out there. Uh, well, okay, that's, that's a wrap. 300 episodes. S- stay tuned for, for 300 more. Thanks. No, I'm not. It's just my voice makes it sound like I'm going to cry. <laughs> you seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX with a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range in a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.